Hello and welcome to Beyond the 18, a podcast where we talk tactics, break down all the games in the Premier League. I'm Patrick Duffy and I'm joined as always by my good friend Rodrigo Plaza. How are you doing this week, Rod? Good, good. It's been a busy weekend for me. Uh, I just want to say apologies to our listener or listeners. I've heard that he's made some friends and has been uh, spreading the good word about our podcast. Um, Preach. But I want to apologize, you know, for coming in a little later this week. Uh, I had to catch up on some other soccer-related things, big-time soccer coaching things happening on my side, but that's for a different show altogether. Uh, and glad, though, that we're able to catch up here on Wednesday and get out our, uh, I'm sure, our, our, our heavily awaited analysis of this week's games. Um, some interesting games I felt like uh, to talk about this week. Um, a little bit different uh, than some of the ones we've seen before. Some of them seemed a little bit less exciting, which, you know, maybe maybe I've gotten a little too uh, 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 used to the, the crazy, exciting games. Um, but some of them seemed a little bit more, I don't know, um, like I fell asleep again uh, during a few games, which was unusual. So, uh, you know, that's to think about, but plenty, plenty to talk about as well. So looking forward to it. Yeah, change of pace, I think, is one of my, my big reaction to this weekend. It felt like, uh, yeah, some, some more dour games that we're going to talk about. Um, we had one small thing besides the delay for the episode coming out um, a little bit later this week. We do have a little tasty surprise for you, listener. We're going to talk more about it at the end of the show, so stick around. A little, uh, yeah, a little treat coming your way um, later on this week. But I think we're going to hop right into talking about the games because, as always, there were a lot of goals and a lot to talk about. So I'm going to kick it to you, Rodrigo, to talk about our first game this week. Yes, Chelsea-Southampton, um, a, a really exciting game. Um, so the final score there, Chelsea 3, Southampton 3. Uh, Chelsea score a couple goals real early. Um, and then Southampton kind of mounts a, a comeback of sorts. Uh, Chelsea again seems to secure, uh, but then in the last few minutes of the game, unfortunately can't quite hold the lead to the end and come out with a tie. I can't imagine how uh, frustrated Frank Lampard must be with with the outcomes of his games. I mean, there's just I feel like every game when you look back at it, uh, it even even the successes they've had have felt like a like real heart attack <laughs> games kind of throughout. So I feel like he must just be extremely frustrated. But let's get dig a little deeper into the game. So first half, um, Southampton comes out and, uh, you know, in their classic 4-4-2. Uh, and I, I was happy to see that for Chelsea, he's going again with a 4-2-3-1, but bringing out uh, Christian Pulisic, who's now healthy and able to play. Ziyech on the bench, uh, also healthy, although he doesn't get a start, which isn't, I think, all that much of a surprise. But one thing I was especially excited about, I don't know if you remember last week, Timo Werner starting as that top-holding target forward. Mm-hmm. I was very excited to see that. Um, and uh, I think he was as well, uh, because very early on, in about the 13th minute, I believe, uh, Werner gets a header uh, that is called back for offsides. Ben Showell continues to be an element for this team. He is sending balls in off the left. He's, you know, deep. Uh, or also running in, get it like a like a deep as in closer to half field, uh, but then also being able to make the runs wide and get crossing from the from the deeper spaces towards the goal really has been 
a real a real element for the team. I think he's a really big part of how they get into the box and attack. But a great example there, Ben Showell sends a beautiful cross in. Werner gets the head on it, but it's called back for offsides. One minute later, however, he receives a ball, kind of an open play and build up on the left-hand side, runs to the ball, and then dummies it, completely throws the defender marking him, turns to receive the ball, carries it into an open 18. As the defenders collapse... He cuts across, and at, at first I thought, oh, no, he's ruined his own chances. You know how that happens sometimes. You just take a, f- a few too many touches, and the next thing you know, everything you've worked for is gone. But luckily for him, he's, uh, well, maybe not quite so lucky, but with a bit of skill, he's able to cut across right and then cut it back to the left, threads a needle if you watch the replay between essentially three defenders, puts it bottom left, beautiful goal, all really his work. It was a nice pass, but the dummy throws everything uh, in, in throws everybody off and really it creates the whole play. Um, so that's a beautiful goal. Glad I think that was his first goal. Was that his first yeah, goal for, first the, for Chelsea? Goal. Yeah, first, yeah, first Premier League goal, and it was a well deserved one. So I was excited about that. Um, and then you know the next the next I don't know maybe seven or so minutes. Uh, it, it looked to me like Chelsea was a little bit struggling in the back. Um, Southampton's 4-4-2 is, is, is a strong defensive shape, right? Because each of those lines is shifting together right and left. So when the ball goes down one side, they're both going to shift, and there's going to be a lot of pressure. You're going to see them really kind of try to collapse onto the ball on the side. And, uh, and their high press was really giving the defense some trouble. I was a little worried about how they were going to break that down. Um, there were, of course, some moments there. Uh, there was a moment where Mason Mount um, and Pulisic have this little – uh, back and forth in the in, in, into the six, really. Really, nice. really, um, nice. really, really nice play. They're able to do some one-twos. I feel like it's the kind of stuff that, like, Manchester United has, like, wet dreams about doing. Like, <laughs> oh, and then he'll run there, and then I'll drive, and then you'll run. But they just can't quite do it. Chelsea really puts on a display there. Um, but Mason Mount has this great touch. There's a through ball from Havertz. Mountain has a great touch. It's just, it's not, it's nothing amazing technically, but it throws off the defense. They were not expecting the ball to be driven kind of back out. And then instead of cutting to shoot or taking it further to the sideline, he kind of lays off the ball, perhaps inadvertently, but still lays it off to the left for Pulisic, who runs onto it, crosses it into the goalie. And then Mount kind of can't quite get the second shot off, off the deflection, but it was really very close. And then... Timo Werner again, but this time with an absolute, I mean, a beautiful goal. One of those ones you're going to see on the highlight reels later uh, to introduce, you know, some show somewhere. Uh, but this this ball is, this this whole thing really starts with Jorginho. So Southampton again is pressing high. And like I said, I've been worried about that for the defense of Chelsea. But Jorginho finds a pretty simple solution. He sends this very long arcing ball over the top, seemingly even a little too high, too much of a float to it. I thought perhaps the defense was going to kind of have, have the time to set up. But this really, again, shows why I think Timo Werner is a great target forward. His initial reaction is not to go up for the ball, but instead to shield it. So the ball's coming down over the top, and he puts his body in between where the ball's going down and the defender. And the defender still gets a head on it, but at that point, it's, it's a bad angle for the defender. He didn't take the space he needed, and the ball starts to go back. Werner alone runs onto it, keeper coming out. 
pops a beautiful little chip over the keeper, runs behind, and as two defenders and the keeper are collapsing on him, stretches his neck ostrich style and just gets a little peck into the goal. (laughs) Honestly, a beautiful play. Um, Again, really kind of built. I mean, it was a nice ball from Jorginho, no doubt, but really built on his skill and insight in that role. I really think that those were both very well-deserved goals for Timo Werner. Um, Chelsea, from that point, really do look dominant. There's a lot of possession. They have a lot of real attacking threats. They have multiple chances on goal. Um, and, 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 and Werner, again, has a few that just, you know, they miss wide or get deflected, but really, they're, they're, right, they're right there. Turning the screw. Absolutely. And and I, I think I even at that point, you know, you're thinking, oh, man, this is, might be a slaughter slash one more goal. And this seems like it's going to kind of kill any possible momentum. But then, of course, in true Chelsea style, in the 42nd minute, uh, they struggle to keep the clean sheet again. Danny Ings uh, makes magic happen. Really, all of this comes from. Two, two, two variables here. One, Kai Havertz has a ball out wide, and he tries to dribble through centrally, um, which Pulisic had done earlier in the game to great effect, driving inside, making combination plays, because you know when Southampton tries to collapse on one side, if you can combine through the middle uh, to the other side, I mean, there's a lot of space over there. So he, he kind of cuts inside but unfortunately can't make it. And they play, you know, Southampton's a bit physical. They end up bumping him off the ball. And it's a one-touch pass um, right there through the, both the central defenders. And Danny Ings takes no pause to run through the center, gets it there, and slides it uh, past uh, Kepa, you know, to put it up to one. And I think in a many ways, that was a huge goal for them to score one before the second half started, giving them a little bit of momentum, something to think about in the in the in the locker room and and, and to build around. I think that was a really, really big, big opportunity for them. And and while it was on the one hand Kai Havertz mistake, the defense really was not ready for that. I mean, it, it's not completely their fault. It's an uninspected turnover, but at the same time, you know, a, a guy receiving the ball between your two central defenders and driving through is not ideal, That's right? You want to probably have one of those central defenders stepping up a little bit into that space in case that ball gets loose and the other sitting behind. And if you do that, that channel's not there for the pass. So, you know, anyways, little little pieces. So it goes to 2-1. Second half. Uh, starts, um, and it looks like Southampton starts to hold the ball a little bit deeper in possession at that point, not quite pressing quite as hard as they have in the first half, um, and Che Adams, who had the assist on the first goal, scores again, scores uh, again, I guess you should say, but scores for the first time in this game uh, for Southampton in the 56th minute. Now, this one is a bit of a mistake uh, again from Chelsea. The music. (laughs) (laughs) So, unfortunately, this is an interesting, this is honestly almost a mirror image of what happens in the Jorginho goal, just just in reverse. Um, So, in this time, it's Romeo who has a ball, no look, big, long ball over the top. This time, of course, this time is different, though, that Kurt Zuma has has the body, has the space to, to play the ball, definitely is beating um, the, I think it was Adams who's chasing the ball. And he tries to make a pass back, but it's it's short. It's just short. There's no really other ways to put it. And because he gives the pass, kind of stops, right? Like passes the ball, expecting that to be the end of the play, but unfortunately stops. Che Adams runs through. Now it's 1v1 with Keppa. And Keppa, I mean, 
yeah, no one is supposed to stop 1v1s, right? I mean, that's not really your job as a goalkeeper, right? Like, if you're in 1v1s, you know, you're a hero if you stop that, especially that far out from goal. But he does a terrible job of closing down space. Instead of picking a side, he goes straight at the ball. And you can't do that. You, you can't as a, as a goalkeeper. If the guy's on that far on the left side, you have to keep pushing him towards the sideline um even if he if he cuts you into the middle and beats you somehow well you know what there's nothing you can do but you need to come out sliding body down to push the ball wide but he just goes straight and it's such an easy uh easy easy dribble for Che Adams he's essentially falling down when he touches the ball still beats Keppa um and then it's kind of an interesting <laughs> Christensen somehow makes it back slides across the easy tap and is denied but then uh, Danny Ings is there, but like can't quite figure out where to be. And Che Adams somehow gets back onto the field after running off and is there and slaps it underneath the, the, the crossbar. And it's 2-2 now. And that's a real... Uh, you can feel the momentum shift there. Suddenly, it's like the classic tale of Chelsea's defense blowing games. Things don't look so good. 59th minute. Havertz has a nice goal, but really this is a Timo Werner goal again. Um, in this in this situation, uh, Southampton are playing possession a lot higher and just kind of lose the ball. Chelsea counters. Werner carries the ball on that counter, plays a beautiful one-two with Pulisic. Like, I think there were literally it was just literally two touches. He passes the ball to Pulisic, Pulisic back, but the ball back is into the 18. To Timo Werner, who's running essentially into a 1v1 with a keeper, defenders coming to him, but space to shoot. And instead of, you know, trying to find the angle, beautiful pass across, and it's a tap-in for Havertz. I mean, really, I mean, it's a, it's a nice goal, but really, this I, I see all of this as Werner. He's the one who brings it out, makes the combination with, with Pulisic, then finds the cr- pass, pass across unselfishly. Beautiful goal. Um, very well put together. And we think, okay, whew, Again, Werner has kind of bailed out the Chelsea defense. They think they're going to be okay. And in the 92nd minute, there is a free kick headed out by, by, by Kurt Zuma. It's not a terrible header, but there's nobody there to pick it up. Theo Walcott just decides to send it back in, hits this kind of not, not the so beautiful bouncing shot back in. And Vestergaard, who's kind of standing at the penalty spot area, has the mind to just put a little touch on it. And I, it's hard to tell how much of that it redirects, but enough that it goes bottom left and Keppel looks like an idiot. I mean, I think it's a little bit less his fault because of the, the, the second deflection, but it really does look bad, um, even on replays. Um, and, but anyways, it's bottom left and there it is, 3-3 and, you know, the final whistle around the corner. Um, so this was a tough game overall for Chelsea, I thought. I thought they looked the much better team especially in the first half, their defense and their offense are just kind of worlds apart, it feels like, at times. When they have the ball in the attacking third with those attacking four or five players, they look like they can they can actually really cut up an 18 and get inside and take shots. Ben Showell adding to that with crosses into the box, they look really dangerous. But trying to build out of the back is definitely that transition from getting the ball from defense to offense. I think that's their weakest, their weakest point of play. Um, 
all told, the things that get them out of that are pretty simple. Send long balls over the top into space for Timo Werner. And either way, you're going to solve the problem. On the one hand, if they're high enough that he can actually make the play, that's one-on-ones for Timo in the long run. And if they send a side to sit back, that creates space for you to build out more comfortably. Uh I think the key here is to not try to do what Christian Pulisic did well in the first 15 minutes of this game, which is try to create combination plays through the center something that like a team like Liverpool does very well don't try to do that because if you lose the ball in that transition your defense is is, it's just your defense with two holding mids against the opposing team and we've seen whether it be confidence skill coordination or all the above that is not Chelsea's strength um so that that's really you want to lose really avoid losing the ball in the center of the field especially on the dribble so I think that's that's a big red flag for them moving forward until they can clean things up in the back Mm -hmm. um but you know on the one hand they looked good and on the other hand they still have some real vulnerabilities yeah I I guess a a few reactions I kind of I, I think everyone was really going in on Kepa on the second goal and I kind of wanted to cut him a little bit of slack because the pass from Zuma was really bad. It was really low pace. And I think what, like, what I saw Kepa doing is he's coming out and he's kind of getting ready to slide. And when he's a keeper in that position, if it's a pass back from Zuma, he can't use his hands. And if it is a pass back from Zuma, then, then right, he's in this kind of awkward position of like, yes. am I sliding in and I have access to my hands or am I going with my feet and my body? And I think... He wasn't really sure what was coming back. Mm. It was really awkward for him. Um, that's so, a good point. I didn't think about that. I, yeah, that's a good point. And I and I think the second goal or the third goal, also the deflection. You know, it's tough. It doesn't look good, and I don't think he should be their starting keeper. But I thought that the errors were in some other places. I I think my first reaction when I started watching this game and looking at the lineup was Christian Pulisic is playing on the right, and Mason Mount is playing on the left. And I wrote in my notes for this week, I just said, huh? Like, what? Like, why is that happening? Pulisic has been playing on the left really well. Why are they switching that up? And I totally agree with you that Chilwell going forward was so good and so creative Mm -hmm. on the Mm left-hand side. But I realized watching more of the game that Chilwell does really struggle defensively. And this was kind of the, the knock on him when he got picked up by Chelsea and the knock on him at Leicester. And I looked at the numbers for him, and he was one of seven in his defensive take-ons in this game, the lowest of any Chelsea defender on the pitch, which is tough. Like, that's not good. And I think Mason Mount playing on the left is actually there to offer some coverage for him because a lot of times Chilwell is overlapping and pushing way up above Mount. And I was like, you know, what is Mount really doing here? And I was like, okay, he's actually in there to give some defensive um, structure to the left-hand side. And Credit Frank. I think that's kind of a smart play. But it does give like a weird positional challenge to Frank moving forward with you want to bring on ZH, you want to bring on a Pulisic, but those guys mm. are not going to be able to do that mount job of, of dropping back. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, that makes me think, too, about that. I think you make a good point about Chilwell on defense. I, I didn't notice it as much, but I could un- I, 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 I don't have... I believe you that maybe he had some some shortcomings. Reminds me of like a, a new and and improved Marcus Alonso situation. Uh, f- funny enough, um, <laughs> but makes me think a little bit about those two holding mids, right? So he has Jorginho and he has Ngolo Kanté, and for me in this game, they neither of them. I mean, 
Jorginho plays well and has a few long balls that, I mean, obviously the one for Werner especially, but has some balls that are good. But I wonder about N'Golo Kante. Um, really poor. The problem, really poor. Yeah, the the problem I think too for him is 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 spatially because his defensive line is not super strong, so him stepping aggressively into space um, is not going to be backed up by the line probably all that well. So there's probably a, a, an incentive to drop a little bit more, but then you're not really doing the role of your holding mid, which is to kind of maintain that first that first defender so that the people behind you can read the game. I feel like he's in a tough situation. Like, it's never fun to be a holding mid in front of a defense that that's not doing that well. But I almost wonder if instead of trying to fix the out-wide problem by having an outside, I don't know what you want to call that, mid winger forward, like Whatever. like yeah. mount drop. Maybe maybe you can try to slide for somebody somebody like like uh, like Ingolo Conte into that wide space. It would be asymmetrical, and you'd have to obviously understand that. But maybe having more support from those one of those two players because right now I have a hard time seeing how those two are really providing a lot of substance in the game. I I, I almost wonder if they wouldn't do better um, like playing somebody that can easily slide into Chilwell's spot so he can do that more because the, at the end of the day if you're attacking with the ball you're not defending and so it doesn't matter if you're not defending if you can't defend that well and I want to keep Chilwell doing that but an interesting question of how they will keep him playing that role I, I thought Conte was terrible in this game uh, he mm. was giving away the ball so frequently there were so many passes where he was just off by yards and it's kind of unnerving for me to see that if I'm a Chelsea supporter you're really used to him being a very consistent and smart player and he was just making some really poor passes on the flip side uh James Ward-Prowse looks like Conte like five years ago he was all over the pitch he was defending everywhere distributing really well and you could tell he was just giving that the the middle of Southampton their spine a lot of structure and building a lot of confidence for that squad I also think with Chelsea, if you have Thiago Silva in the back line, then you're you're relieving some of the pressure off your CDMs, and he didn't play in this game, and so I right. think like you know he he brings that leadership, he brings that that solid structure that we've seen, um, and I also think Reese James, like Aspilicueta, I didn't think really played poorly in this game, but I think Reese James has been excellent when he's been playing. He looked really great for England in the break, and so there's some personnel stuff that I think can be fine tuned with them. Mm-hmm. On a, a little bit further, though, Havertz was just getting bullied on the ball quite a bit. And I think that might be an adjustment in the play style, something to be thinking about for him. But like you mentioned when in that goal that came off the turnover from him, it's just he's getting out, out muscled by, by other players. Yes, it was, it, was, it was a physical battle. I mean, I think that's by far his biggest weakness is when somebody's able to get enough pressure, get close enough to him to actually put a body on him, he, he's he's definitely struggling in those kinds of encounters. And, I mean, especially, like, think about this way. Compare him to a player like Hamas, who I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Like, Hamas takes a lot of physical abuse, but he's doing a good job of framing it and getting the fouls mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. and and or avoiding it, being quick with the ball and making through passes. And I feel like if Havertz wants to play a role like that, which I think he definitely can, uh, like technically with the skill and the vision he has, he's going to need to find a way to resolve that problem because otherwise they're going to try to do what they do to Hamas. And I don't think he, you know, he could, he could get shut down. You know, yeah. he's, I definitely agree. It's a physical challenge for him. 
Um, but yeah, we've we've gone deep on this game, and I, I think there's good reason because this was a cracker. And actually, this is a game that I watched. I watched this game live, kind of half attention, and I rewatch it today because it really is an interesting game. And I think, uh, listener, if you do get the chance to rewatch it. Just check out how Southampton really plays in the middle of the field. They really play centrally in a way that a lot of other clubs don't. So something I think we're going to talk more about down the line in other episodes. But I think we should move on to our next game. Um, Our next game we're going to talk about is Leeds uh, against Wolverhampton Wanderers, a.k.a. Wolves. Uh, Wolves were playing in their traditional Portuguese kits for this game. Um, yeah, seriously, their third kit is is the exact same kit. It's beautiful, it's be- but it's literally the Portuguese kit. It's hilarious. It's so strange for me to think about, like, English people from the Midlands who are, like, you know, just kind of like your, your, your average, everyday working people supporting Wolves have this, like, really weird played-out connection with Portugal. Um. And this this was an interesting game because I think we we've talked about Leeds being these newcomers coming in. They play this really fast style, a lot of quick uh, play, really attractive play for a newly promoted side against a Wolves side that I think both of us have felt like have struggled identity wise and have been playing kind of a different game. Um, so tactically, I actually think that played out for the mo- for the majority of this game is that Wolves played a slightly heavier possession game that we're used to seeing. And Leeds played their, you know, hardcore uh, swashbuckling, like one-touch, quick-pass sort of play. Um, I thought watching the game that Leeds really came out super hot out the gate. They had a lot of chances. They were attacking really fast. And in some moments, I actually thought that the play was almost, it almost looked like it was too fast for the personnel that they had. They were, like, just missing passes. They were, like, just mistiming their run. There were small little moments where it's like, man, if this is like half a second better or like half a yard better, then you're going to end up finding the the net. On the other side, Wolves, I thought, started pressing really high after that first like 10 minutes of Leeds pressure. Um, Sice is their Moroccan, usually like left center back, but he's now sort of been playing as this left wing back. And he was pushing all the way up into the opponent's 18 in a way that like, doesn't really compute with what I'm used to seeing with Wolves. Wolves are used to play that really deep block in that 3-5-2, and that's what they did last year. But this year, in this game, they were really playing, like, not a 5-3-2 with the two wingbacks sitting really deep. It was really Mm 3-5-2 coming out the gate. Uh, I think the the first half, honestly, there there was some some good chances going both ways. the one thing that I noticed out of Wolves is that in the first half, there were a couple of corners where Wolves really left the back back post wide open. And I was shocked to see that because I typically view Wolves as really defensively organized and it just seemed like some breakdown. The one player who I was watching pretty closely for Wolves in that first half was uh, Semedo, brought in from Barcelona, a player who you and I, I think, generally rate. Amazing pace, like really good athleticism, really good work rate. His decision-making and his passing in this game were terrible. The whole first half when I was watching, like, making mistakes on throw-ins, throwing in the ball and, like, hitting players, like, awkwardly or, or, or giving it to them too slow and them having to really struggle. Um, so I think Wolves needs to think about maybe, like, li- building out of the play less with him, and that's exactly what happened in the second half. 
is that Wolves kind of let go of possession and allowed Leeds to play into the game a little bit more and started to sit back. And I felt like this was kind of the game that I expected was we were going to see like a lot of play building out of the back from Leeds and them getting a lot of attacking chances and Wolves just absorbing the pressure and looking for the counter. And that hadn't really been how it played out in the first, but it did in the second. Um, there, in the 53rd minute, uh, Potence, who's the new number 10 for Wolves, he was working on the right, and he has this uh, this nice switch cross came in from him from Sice, and Potence then crosses it back over to Sice on the left, who hits it one time. Beautiful goal. Um, it, it ended up getting ruled off sides by like just a hair. One of many times that VAR got involved this weekend to call that. Um, and then not too much later in the 70th minute, Wolves do get the goal. And it was kind of a weird moment. The uh, Wolves just hit this ball over the top. I think it was I think it was Jao Matinho who hit the ball, but I don't remember who ends up getting the assist. And the Leeds defender is there. It kind of reminded me of the Jorginho ball that was hit. It's just this like mm-hmm. long arcing ball coming up over the top. And the defender had position. Drake, I'm not going to say his name correctly, um, for Leeds. <laughs> and he slipped. And it was like raining, wet pitch, and it, just like the sort of thing that happens. He slips, and Jimenez like just picks up the ball because uh, he's right there. And then Raul Jimenez kind of like cuts him to the right, and then he's able to cut left across the 18. And Leeds gets numbers back. Like they commit numbers back to defend. There's three guys right in front of Raul Jimenez. He's kind of going to the left on top of the 18, and then he just turns and he gets onto his right foot, and no one steps up. And there's so much base, and he hits it. And it does take a deflection when it goes in. I think it's off Calvin Phillips. Um, so maybe a little lucky with the deflection, wrong foot's the keeper. But it's just like, it, it was like very elementary to see in my mind. Like, you know, you're a defender, you're in this position, you're letting Raul Jimenez get onto his preferred right foot for no reason. Like, in the worst-case scenario, I would say they should have fouled him on top of the 18 and risk it with the free kick, but instead they they, they let him get into that space and, and hit it. Um, I thought one other note that I had from this game, Wolves ended up holding on. It's 1-0. They win this game. Maybe a surprise result based on form. I would have kind of guessed that Leeds would come in the favorite into this game. Um, Adama Traore was, again, dropped. He didn't start. Um, but he came on in the second half, and he was not directly involved in the goal, but he's involved in like the break of a play for Leeds that ends up winning possession. And I kind of am getting into the idea of like Traore comes in late, and he's this kind of like super sub who can come in and really disrupt and be physical, um, and not maybe put so much pressure on him to be running up and down the pitch for 90 minutes, but to allow him to be this like you know, late game punch, and it worked really well. Um, the announcer said that in Wolves' last 26 games, they have failed to score in the first half in 20 of those games. So this is a team that definitely likes to play second half, very responsive football, and and that was on display here. So quality three points for Wolves. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about this game? The one, the one thing I wanted to call attention to, although it was a disallowed goal, was uh, there was an amazing shot from uh, Roman, I think it's Romaine Sice. Sice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He hits a laser from outside that really, like... It was beautiful. 
Oh, it was a beautiful goal. I was like so confident it was a goal too. Um, the offsides was actually they they distributed the ball wide first, and in that very first the pass, up, there right? was yeah, in the build up there was an offsides, which was unfortunate. But that goal itself was kind of a was a kind of a beauty. Um, yeah, I, I the one other thing I'll say is like I think Leeds definitely had their chances. Uh, they did create. Um, and you know, I think it was in the first six minute Bamford had a headed in goal that ended up being called back as well for being offsides. Um, but they did have their chances. Right. The first half for Wolves, despite playing like that high, they seemed pretty flat. Um, totally. It didn't seem like they were building that much. And I just want to agree with kind of what your I think the the larger point you made about Semedo is just that. This is kind of what I felt like I was reading when I saw him kind of struggling in the first game, um, like I think a couple of weeks back. He, it just doesn't seem like he understands fully what he's doing. He seems a little yeah. lost. Yeah. And I almost wondered if, in a certain sense, um, it's because he has more things to think about when he's playing in a midfield role rather than a defender role. When you're playing a defender role and you're looking for a lane out, essentially every time you go to attack, it's like, well, I just got the ball with a huge lane of space. <laughs> it's not that hard to figure out. Like, I'm just going to go take this as far as I can and cross into space. But when you're trying to build up in the middle, it's more of a central it's player. Tough. It's it, tough. It's a little more complex, yeah. And it definitely seems like he's a little out of out of his element um, doing that right now. So maybe it's a learning curve, but I, I have this low confidence all of a sudden about him, and that's that's really unfortunate. But Me too. Uh, the, my only thoughts about that game. Um, so I'll take us into our next one, uh, Sheffield, Fulham. Um, oh, God. Okay, so... <laughs> This is what Sheffield's first point. Uh, Sheffield Fulham's ties Fulham and Fulham's first point. I don't like to talk about them. Uh, but Sheffield uh, and Fulham tie one one, uh, showing how much effort they've put into getting this first point here for both of them. So I think I think the long story short here, um, Sheffield looked like looked like Sheffield did last year. Honestly, they, they were making some nice kind of attacking runs into the box, some crosses, and they just weren't finishing kind of like they were last year. Uh, McBurney has, I don't know, five, six uh, opportunities in the air, balls he puts down. Some of them were difficult than others, but and all of them decent strikes, but just none of them could he put in the back of the net, and, and that was a real challenge. One thing that was also a challenge for Sheffield this entire game was offsides. There were, I think, a, a, a few super close, like still didn't quite finish opportunities that were called offsides. And the thing is, even if those were goals, they would have been offsides, right? So it, it's hard. It's it, it's it's easy to keep focusing on like, oh, keep just getting there. But you got to make sure you're doing that on sides because otherwise you're going to have an even bigger heartbreak in some of the bigger games when you start to put those pieces together and you're you know one step or two offsides in the buildup or in the or in the you know in the final finish. Um, so that's a big thing they need to they need to lock that down. Like that needs to get better. Um, but on top of that, this was not their day when it came to finishing. Um, so, you know, in the end, if we dive a little deeper into the chronology of the game, um, it starts out with uh, the first, like, goal uh, opportunity that was very, very clear actually happens in the second half. Mitrovic uh, gets a penalty kick, 
and he just skies it. I mean, I did one. I had a PK that I shot like this, I think, when I was like 13 in some state cup game here, and I've literally never forgot. It's like tattooed onto my brain. Um, and, and I think the announcers probably got it right. It looks like he changes his mind. He goes to hit it left. The keeper goes left. And he seems to kind of tighten up his body as if to go back the other way. But by doing that and closing his hips up, he goes up and just kind of skies it, tips the top of the bar and goes over. Um, so he misses that opportunity, which was which was pretty which was pretty rough because Fulham up to that point had uh, had been kind of struggling to build opportunities. Um, and then there's really a solo effort here by Lookman in the 77th minute. He gets the ball outside the 18, kind of looking like he might try to put a cross in. Cuts a couple times early to get past the first defender and then just drives inside. And uh, like I said, an individual effort, dribbles in, smashes it past the goalkeeper. I mean, he beats, I think, a couple defenders there. And before people can get close enough to close him down, he, he's able to put it in. Um, I, you know, for what it's worth, uh, you know, like I said, Sheffield has a lot of chances here. They just really struggle to finish. Um, that goal gives Fulham a little bit of gas and they start to kind of put some pressure on and there are a few good saves uh, by Ramsdale. He actually kind of keeps them in this game a couple times. Um, and then in the 83rd minute, uh, Sheffield are able to get themselves a penalty kick. Um, Mitrovic is unfortunately the man to give them that penalty kick. It's a ball bouncing in the box, and I think it was it might have even been Billy Sharp, but someone goes to hit it, and he goes as well. But the but the Sheffield player beats him to the ball, sends the ball in the air, and by the time he swings his leg, he just hits he just hits the other player. Um, the actually play went on for a good couple of minutes, and there was almost I think an opportunity for them on the other side, but they had to VAR reviewed and went back. They give it the PK. Billy Sharp takes it, slots it home. A well-taken PK. Very, very hard. Hits it very, very hard. Puts it a kind of high up on the right side. And then in the last, I don't even know, like five minutes of the game or so, um, Fulham has a real assault. And Mitrovic gets like three or four opportunities. Headers. Um, a couple Ramsdale has nice saves. A couple that just go past or wide. He was tortured at the end of this game. I, I I think it was like the third opportunity he has in the last few minutes. You can see him just screaming obscenities in the goal afterwards. Uh, <laughs> just really struggles in this game. Misses the PK. Gives up a PK. Misses all the chances at the end. Which I think, you know... As we've kind of come to understand, is like that's what he's there to do. He's there to finish these crosses coming into the box, and by missing all of those, you know, he's putting at probably his own worth. Really, like his worth was on the table there, and he just couldn't pick it up and walk away with it. So, a tough game uh, for him as an individual. A tough game for Sheffield, uh, not being able to finish there, and all the offsides calls that they were kind of falling prey to. This was this was also the time for Sheffield to get some points. Yeah. I mean, to get some real points. And with really that passing by, it, it seems more and more likely by the day that Sheffield and Fulham are destined to be, you know, <laughs> that this tie is, is t connecting them in a faded way to be at the bottom of the table. Um, but we'll see how, how things progress. I, at the end of the day, Sheffield needs to finish. They need to finish. They need to figure that out um, and then hope that they can continue to create opportunities like they did in this game um, with, with future opponents. Although it's, it's, really, it's really not saying a whole lot to create those against Fulham. Uh -huh. um, any thoughts before we move on to the Leicester-Astonville game? I guess just, yeah, two quick things. 
I did think, to Fulham's credit, they, their back line played the offside strap pretty well. I think, you know, Sheffield, like you mentioned, was sloppy in that they weren't watching the line. But I thought there's some coordination there from Fulham that they should get some credit for. Yeah, maybe I should have given that. I can't help myself. <laughs> I only see I only see Blades and their mistakes nowadays. It's it's sad. I'll say something nice about your Blades, though. Uh, they have the third fewest goals allowed of any team, tied with, like, <laughs> ten other teams. But... Um, but on the, okay, we'll take it. on the defensive end, though, like I, I will say I'm not like like Sheffield is not leaking goals. It's not like there's been, you know, they've played Arsenal like they've played some bigger clubs like they've had some games where it could there's been so many blowouts in other places. And like Sheffield is still a defensively really well organized team. I think the key for them is to think about Rian Brewster. And he got a few minutes in this game. He's trying to yeah. watch him. You know, he's going to take some time to integrate and find his way into the squad. But I think, um, yeah, you know, there's definitely – it felt like when I was looking over this game again, like, okay, there's some hope for Sheffield. But, like, it can't just be some hope. you got to convert hope into three points, especially when you're playing the other teams at the bottom of the table. And I, I really preferred last year when McBurney was someone who was usually coming off the bench later in the games. Yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like starting him against most opponents, they're going to get into that rhythm of trying to uh, of working against what he has, which is usually, you know, kind of like dominance for the air ball on the headers. And I think it was always better to put him in late. He's a very physical. I mean, he's huge. He's huge. And he's a physical player who can win balls in the air, putting him in later when, when opponents are more tired and are probably going to have a little bit tougher time adjusting to a a style of play change or like a, like a player change, I think would be more effective. And I would, it would also allow you to give Rian Brewster some more minutes, which I think he's going to need to build some chemistry, like in game with that team. I would just swap that myself personally, give him some more minutes, especially given how you're, the outcomes you're having and the mistakes here from 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 McBurney, take him out, sub him in later, make him feel the pressure of like trying to get back in his starting position, and see if he can you know bag a couple of goals a little later in the game. So I hope maybe they'll give that a shot. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I think we're gonna hit our next game, uh, Leicester Aston Villa. Leicester zero, Aston Villa one. Uh, Aston Villa might be for real. I, I, I know I'm going to talk a little bit about like what happened in the details of this game, but they're, they've, they've won every game that they've played so far and they've played now Liverpool and Leicester. Like it's kind of hard for me to look at Aston Villa and see them being pretty legit and buy into it. Um, but they're pretty legit. So yeah, getting into this game, I think, one note to that at the start, Soyuncu is not playing for Leicester and neither is Jamie Vardy. Prescient for myself in saying that Leicester are Jamie Vardy injury away from really struggling, and that was on full display in this game. Uh, right off the bat, uh, Leicester did have a couple of chances. Um, Castagna, and he, he's really using the space really well on the left. Um, to attack the Aston Villa goal, some kind of routine saves from Emmy Martinez to warm up. And then he had one really nice save uh, where Castagna had a really nice chance and Villa got a, a good save. I think it was early in like the 15th minute. And it sort of felt like after that point, Villa kind of settled into the game a little bit more. Um, 
I think Leicester's strategy in the first half was to really go at the left side of Aston Villa. Um, I believe on the on the looking like going from that side, they were going with Priet, Priet, and Ianacho was like kind of the way that they were trying to attack. But Villa were playing these two their their two center backs really 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 deep. So Tyrone Mings was sitting way back, not trying to play the offsides trap, um, and. Then they were having Douglas Luiz, their number six, come back and be almost like a third center back. And I thought Douglas Luiz, this whole game, was fantastic. He was distributing really well, defending really well, and working from basically his own 18 um, to the opponent's 18, but just really trying to take on the heavy defensive load to cover for Jack Grealish because it's not really what he's there to do. Um, Villa have a really nice chance in the 26th minute where Douglas Luiz hits this deep ball to target the left back um, and then target kind of pings it right into Grealish who one touch crosses it to Trezeguet who just misses wide. And I think seeing that like really quick switch of the field, one touch interplay football for Aston Villa is totally because they have Jack Grealish, like their entire attack, the way that they're playing this whole game is really built around him as their creative player. And he's absolutely, he's just fantastic in this game. Um, Moving forward, Leicester got really frustrated when they were trying to have Iannaccio do some like hold-up play up front. They were sort of sending in some longer balls to him, and Iannaccio was getting into these one-on-ones or sometimes encountering two defenders. And he had three fouls really quickly in the first half that felt kind of like frustration fouls because it felt like Leicester was trying to play him like Vardy, where Vardy is really smart and knows how to dummy players in those positions, is really physical and is able to hold up. And that's just not really Iannaccio's strengths and, and where he excels. Um, moving on into the second half, it got really, really physical right at the end of the half. There was a lot of fouls to close it out. Um, both sides, I think that was their part of their defensive strategy, is we're going to use our midfielders to just foul Harvey Barnes for Leicester, foul Jack Grealish, break down attack. That's like a... a really smart strategy on both sides of the ball to slow down the attacks. Um, I think Tielemans for Leicester was like really key to this and just really trying to play very disruptively in that eight role for Leicester. And then coming out of the half, it it was also extremely physical. Um, Grealish had this one really nice chance though, I think in like the 45th minute where he sort of sends this like back heel pass nutmeg through one of the defenders to put, uh, I think he put Trezeguet in and, and Trezeguet sends in a ball. And it, it, like, again, they're just not able to, to convert on the chance. The cross was just like a little too high. Um, and then in the second half, I think some of the other notes that I had was that Matt, James Madison comes on in the second half. He'd been injured and, um, he makes such a big difference for Leicester going forward. They had really lacked creativity. Harvey Barnes, I think, is a good creative player in his link-up with, with Vardy, but this game it felt like he was just really limited in his ability to play off of Iannaccio and, and was almost serving as like another CDM in the way that he was playing. Um, and, yeah, Madison is really starting to build up the, the attack for Leicester, and I sort of felt like this game was going to go to Leicester taking the three points. Um, but then injury time, the game is still nil nil and, uh, Brendan Rogers had brought on Chowdhury as a, uh, as a substitute 
and he had a poor game. He gives away pass. He gives away possession to Villa, and Villa is able to work the ball all the way back to Emmy Martinez, their keeper, who then distributes it, recycles the ball all the way back up, coming up the right, and they find Ross Barkley in the middle, and Ross Barkley just gets this run right through the middle of the field, and he hits the bottom corner from 20-plus yards out. Exactly what you had talked about with him, like really wanting to see him play those like central runs. And it's this is a quality win for Aston Villa. I think they're catching Leicester at the right time. So there's, you know, there, there's some value to that, of course. But you play against the team that's on the other side and you take three points, you take three points. So um, I'm really impressed. Like Aston Villa plays, you know, serious soccer and plays in an attractive attacking style. It's great to see. What were your thoughts about this game? Certainly. I, I, I think everything – I agree with almost everything you said. A couple of things I just, I'll just add to it. I think part of what has made Aston Villa – and this isn't a whole – but just one element I want to call out is I think that Ross Barkley really is helping Jack Grealish carry the load because Jack Grealish gets a lot of fouls in this game, and he's certainly – he's the man. I mean, he is the facilitator for this team. But the fact that he has a, a, a player like Barkley in the center of the field that he can sometimes play one-two with, sometimes give the ball and let and let kind of Barkley make some little runs that draw attention to him, I think is a really big add for Jack Grealish so that he doesn't have to do that all the time. Yeah. He kind of has an outlet. Um, so I thought that was like a, a, a big thing about He's adding value in that he can be the player to receive that ball on the run. He can be dangerous on his own. But I think they are sharing that 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 burden of being those players in the mid, although they do it in slightly different ways. And in a way, <coughs> I feel like Harvey Barnes doesn't have that mm-hmm. in this game. He doesn't have somebody to share that kind of creative threat, um, partly because Vardy is out and partly just because there's not another central midfielder player that I really feel like slots into that. Maybe Madison can help, and, and in a way, I think he definitely was a good a good substitution, you know, obviously assuming that he's healthy as well. Um, but, but I think that that's, like a, 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 honestly, a fair comparison. Um, you know, Grealish is a little more stylish and does, I think, a little bit more, uh, or plays a little bit more of a central role sometimes than Harvey Barnes does, Harvey Barnes does but... He definitely was getting the help that I think Harvey Barnes really needed. And I, I couldn't agree with you more about the Vardy missing and that being a problem. There were I there were a lot of, I think, a lot of chances, but a few that I picked out in particular that really just showed me that Iannaccio and then later um, Islam Slimani, yeah, yeah. neither of them Tough. could do what they what Lester needed and or anticipated from their attacking mid. I'm sorry, it's from their from their target forward. Um, there was like a one v one with the keeper early on for Iannaccio that he was just too late to the ball. Um, and and in the second half, um, there was a there was a shot from um, Iose Perez that went to the back post. And I think of a player like Vardy leaps on that and just, you know, gets gets to pick up the garbage goal. But Iannaccio pretty much just watches that one go by. He, he makes the faintest effort to go there, but he, he knows he can't. Um, and then later, uh, there's a ball through for Slimani. It's a one-on-one with the defender, but he can't take him inside. He has to end up kind of going outside and trying to shield the ball because he doesn't have the speed. So... Not having that speed is really tough. I think it's actually kind of interesting comparison to make with the Chelsea game because when you have a player like Timo Werner with speed and intelligence to play as a target forward, 
it keeps the other defense, the other team deeper on defense, more space in the midfield to play, and/or creates opportunities. And here, that wasn't a threat, and that 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 was a challenge for them. It kept it kept the game from being from being dangerous at sometimes for Leicester. Although all told. I do think that Leicester played really well here um, and could have and could have easily come out with the W if, if things had gone a little differently for them. If they had Vardy, I'm very confident they win this game. Um, yeah. But but Aston Villa is for real. I'm 100% about that. Um, they have something figured out that works really, really well uh, between Ollie Watkins uh, and, and, and Barkley and... Um, and now I can't even remember his name and Grealish like those three players are dynamically in- engaging with one another building some great chemistry very exciting, exciting honestly very exciting um I, so I think the the one piece I'm maybe thinking about with Iannaccio and and Brendan Rodgers was getting a lot of criticism Leicester manager after this game for his tactics and I kind of agreed with some of the stuff that I was reading it's just like you don't have Jamie Vardy there. You shouldn't play Iannaccio like he's Jamie Vardy because he's not. Vardy's like a really unique, really special player. You have to adjust your tactics. And like, is this like you don't have a plan B? Is this like an overestimation of Iannaccio and the kind of player he is, a misunderstanding? It just felt like, you know, Iannaccio, is, he, he has some quality. He can hit the ball really well. He can dribble the ball really well with some space. He can connect with players pretty well. But he, he's, you know, he's not, he's not Vardy. So, like, I felt like Brendan Rodgers needed to adjust here and just, just did it. And, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see because they play Arsenal at the weekend and uh, it's unclear Vardy's going to be back. So, if he's not, like, they, they definitely need to have some, some adjustments going into that game. But, um, getting, speaking of Arsenal, we should kick it to that game. So, uh, Arsenal City, what, what were you thinking? So... Yes, the City Arsenal game. First of all, the final score is Manchester City one, Arsenal zero. Um, this game was—it's hard for me to find the right word for it. It was not the most exciting game of the weekend, the, to put it lightly. Um, it wasn't the most exciting game. Uh, the goal is scored fairly early in the game. It's scored in the first half, I think, in the twenty-third minute or so. Um, it this to be it, it showcased in a way what I saw as as the I saw like I've I've been complaining about two things predominantly for both of these teams. Thing one for City, and it's actually kind of the same thing for both of them. City plays a very high press, which. I assume, I mean, I assume, I do agree that they're pretty good at, um, and, and that works out for them. But when they win the ball, the thing that they don't really have is a sense of urgency, right? In fact, they seem to have the opposite, right? They have, seem to have the sense of once we get the ball, we secure the ball. And that's like a whole phase of play, which is like securing the ball before they're willing to launch an attack. Mm. And I really think that you can see comparisons between, for example, a team like Leicester, Aston Villa, um, even like Chelsea this weekend, but especially like Liverpool, who have a real sense of urgency when they get the ball in transition. Wherever they win the ball, they're looking to go forward and be dangerous immediately. 
And Guardiola's style is not really like that, at least not as we've seen it uh, kind of implemented so far. When they win the ball, unless it's very clear that they can go to goal, a lot of times they're willing to kind of recycle the ball back and kind of move the ball from side to side, almost trying to look for like this constellation of space in between the defenders Mm. rather than just attacking a space drawing attention and then going to whatever space was created like they don't really do that it seems like they have to get the constellation built and then they have enough talent to to actually see that through but it seems like they're waiting for all the steps to line up before they'll really engage in a full a full attack and i think that this really undersells them now they don't have kevin de bruyne in this game and i have been screaming at pep guardiola to build everything around <laughs> that player, um, to give him space in, in 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 kind of like more like shallower recesses towards half field where he can send the ball in and kind of send bodies into the box to finish, but he doesn't have that. So that that I mean I can't I can't make complaint about that. Um, and the, on the other side, I feel like I see the same thing with Arsenal. Totally. I don't understand the high press for them at all. I do not think that this is where, they're, where their biggest advantage is. Um, it, it really, for me, is all about the counterattack for them. And they should be playing a much more defensive style and then bursting into the attack from there. Um, and I don't, I don't see that in this game. They come out early on, trying to press high. That's also not the best thing I think to do against a City team. That said, because City doesn't have that sense of urgency, they tend to kind of gradually build up, like gradually push Arsenal back into their own half and then start to look for the attack, which to me, again, is not it's not the way to do it. Now, if you can imagine a game where both teams are kind of doing something that isn't to their advantage, it ends up being kind of dry. I don't see Arsenal get a ton of counters you know, that are exciting. Um, and I don't see Man City really building very dangerous attacks, even though they have a lot of possession of the ball. Now, to say some things about the game that I did think were, that did go well, Saka and Tierney on the left was the most dynamic element of Arsenal's play. Agreed. They were making runs in and out of the channel wide, building some nice combinations. Saka does have an opportunity. I can't remember in what minute. He kind of gets a, not a 1v1, but he gets the ball in space in the 18, mm. and he just can't quite get it past uh, Ederson there. But that was, I think, like the biggest opportunity that I can remember from the game. He is playing really well. Saka should remain a starter. I think he's doing really well. And Tierney, I think, is a good compliment behind him. Um, so I, I thought that that was all good. And Ceballos kind of drifts into that space on the left too and kind of helps combine there. I thought that that was, that was, that was decent. Um, the goal that City does get uh, kind of early in the set, or not early, but it, halfway through the first half, uh, like the 23rd, 25th minute, tellingly is off of a counter. <laughs> Uh-huh. It's it's a counterattack where the ball is given to Aguero in the center of the field. He makes a dribble. Um, the the back the back three are under pressure, and uh, Bellerin is 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 kind of squeezing inside to deny Aguero a clear vision of the goal. And as he's making that shift, uh, Aguero passes out wide to Foden, shoots on goal. It's blocked, but it's blocked back into the 18, essentially to the penalty spot. And Sterling is right there. Nobody really to stop him in that situation, and he just puts it right in the goal. Uh-huh. 1-0. And then from there, like I said, I don't know that I see a lot more out of that city side. Um, I Like I said, I think Willie Ann kind of disappears in this game as well. 
I, I, I don't think he does that much for the side. Um, Terrible. The, yeah, I think the only time he would be as really a lot of these players do best with space in front of them. Um, they need to invite. And the thing is, City's doing that. They're they're putting the pressure, so they're they're inadvertently giving Arsenal that chance. But instead of kind of dropping deeper and letting that happen, it seems to be this kind of like we'll push forward. They'll gradually push us back. They'll kind of screw that up. Then we'll try to build out of the back then we won't really get it, and it just kind of keeps happening over and over again. So I, I, I don't know if maybe if I'm reducing this to to to, to two, like I'm, I'm diminishing the value they're bringing, but it really didn't feel like either of them was playing to their strengths the way that they could. So boring. Uh, yeah, Sokka and Tierney are my standout players for this game. I liked both of them and the way they were playing. They were trying to do a lot with very little, was kind of how I felt like, and they were doing a decent job. Um, the game was kind of deadlocked and close, honestly, for most of it, although not in a particularly exciting way. Do you any any pieces you want to add for for your gunners here before we move forward? If you told me we only would lose to Manchester City one zero, I'd be like, oh great. So I guess <laughs> I guess starting there, I thought Arsenal defended really well, and that's weird. I think our our back line has looked really solid this season. Leno, like the deflection, it's a little unfortunate, but overall he was great. And um, I thought the back four played well. Bellerin had a couple of kind of shaky moments, but it's weird to say that I thought our defense, center, goalkeeper were our strongest part of this game outside of Saka because I think he was the only creative player. The front three looked like they just couldn't be asked to do anything in this game. And I think... Part of me is like, do they just like not care? Because they were so flat, no movement in the front for Arsenal whatsoever. Like we would get the ball in the midfield, and it would just be three or four players in front of them, standing statuesque still. And I'm like, what is going on? But I think when when I was rewatching some of this game, William in the, like the lineup, he's left. He's listed as like the the, the left wing, and Aubameyang is the center forward. But Aubameyang plays on the left, and William plays as like this floating 10 kind of role and it's just like if if you watch any of William at Chelsea and when he was successful for Arsenal in the first game at Fulham he was playing on the right wing and like he is not uh number 10 he should not be playing in that role he should be playing on the right wing because you're right when he has space in front of him is when he's going to be a threat um so I think, like, lineup-wise, there were some mistakes. Lacazette would have done well in this game. It should have been Aubameyang, Lacazette, and Pepe, and Willian should have been on the bench. I think there's just a lack of creativity in the midfield is what Arteta is worried about, and hopefully Thomas Partey is going to bring a little bit of that. We saw a glimpse of him, which is exciting, because I do think that means he's probably going to start uh, maybe tomorrow in the Europa League or, or this weekend against Leicester. So exciting to get to see him. Um, but the creativity in midfield problem has been kind of persistent through this season for Arsenal. Um, and it comes at a kind of awkward time in terms of some club decisions around Mesut Ozil. So I believe on Monday, or it might have been Tuesday morning, the club released their roster squad for the Premier League for the season, and Ozil was noticeably absent. So that means he will not play for Arsenal in the Premier League. He was dropped from the Arsenal Europa League squad a week before, so it is pretty clear that he will not play again in an Arsenal kit, uh, which I think 
it's not totally a surprise, but this is not at all the ending that I think any Arsenal fan would have imagined would happen. And he put out a pretty emotional statement talking about how um, he loves London. This is his home. He's really wanted to play. He's really disappointed and frustrated. And Arteta, almost immediately this afternoon, he was like, this was a footballing decision and it was made by me. It has nothing to do with anything off the field. Um, this was a decision that I made on my like that that I made as the manager of this club, and you know he started off really well for us, and then form fell and like and he got dropped. Um, I think as an Arsenal supporter and like interacting with some other Arsenal supporters, people are really split. Some people feel like that's bullshit, and he's just covering up for a corporate Arsenal because Ozil had made those statements about the Uyghur Muslims. He's very critical of China. And the club has financial interests to, to really push away from that. But then I think other people are right in, in their interpretation. Like, Ozil has just not been great. He's a good player going forward, but he is so bad defensively that, it, you know, it, it, it can be hard to justify picking him. Um, so it's a very strange moment at the club. Um, and I, I have a lot of mixed emotions. We're kind of in this turning point, and there's some – some nice glimmers and some nice potential. But, you know, Ozil has really been the face of the club for the last, I guess, like, what's it, seven years now. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's a big change, and it definitely is not happening in the way that I think anyone feels satisfied or good about. Um, it would have been really nice to get to see him, you know, get a send-off for being a, a, a really great player because he has been historically a really great player for Arsenal and, and deserves that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my, my Ozil rant. Um, to close it out, I just I, I felt like something needed to be mentioned on it. And, um, yeah, this game, though, just snooze, absolute snooze. Yeah, as crazy as it sounds, I think what they need to do is a little bit more of what we saw in some of those games we've already talked about. No look, deep driven balls over the top, and just find out whether Obama Yang is faster than every single player on the every team they play. I, there's just no reason that, that I don't that, that that's not a good idea because the worst worst case scenario is that they end up having to sit a little deeper, and now Arteta can create more space for the kind of play out of the back he's looking for. That to me is the biggest thing, you know. And it would I, honestly Ozil whether whether his performance is is poor or good, and he'd be a good player or not, if you're not going to play creating the space in behind, there's going to be very little to work with, I think, yeah. for a player who's creative on the attack, and that's a problem for them, I think, right now. Yeah. So, oh. Strange times. Strange times. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break to process these strange times, listener, and when we come back, we're going to knock out the last five games of the week, um, but we're going to go to a good one so stick around and we'll be right back okay welcome back we are going to go into our next game for the week west ham three tottenham hotspur three i i can't I can't fully convey to you, listener, how wide the grin on my face is, how much joy I have from being able to talk about this game. Uh, I'll, 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 I'm going to really try my absolute hardest to be as fair in my description as I can. 
Um, I have some notes to guide me, so we'll see. But just I want you to know that my heart is just so full of joy and happiness right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna create a custom paint by numbers of Duffy's face from this episode <laughs> for our listener to paint at some point in the future, so they can really they can create themselves <laughs> the emotion that I'm witnessing now. This is an excellent, excellent place. Let's continue. Let's get in there. So uh, Spurs came out the gate so hot. So scorching hot, they score a goal in the first minute of the game. I like I tuned in literally at kickoff, and I looked down at my phone for a second, and Spurs have scored. Kane gets the ball in the middle of the field, and he just pe- makes a pass over the lines, breaks the lines to Sun, and it's a great ball. And Sun one on one, he beats the defender Balbuena and and slots in the goal. And this was like the goal that we saw. It's similar to some of the goals that we saw against United with Harry Kane playing this false nine, like distributor role. And it, yeah, it's just, it was a really, really quick, surprising goal, I think, because, you know, West Ham can maybe defend. Turns out that they cannot, um, because in the eighth minute, uh, Spurs scores again. So Kane nutmegs two West Ham defenders. Um, and is able to find the goal. He just like does Declan Rice so dirty on this play. I think it's like right at the top of the 18. They're both on the England squad, and they were playing together during the international break. I wonder if Declan Rice like said something to Kane or like did something disrespectful because it that was so brutal. And Declan Rice is a solid central defensive midfielder, um, and he just got absolutely done. Uh, and then. They go again. It, like Spurs had chance after chance after chance. So in the 17th minute, Son is coming down on the left. He gives the ball to Regulon, uh, and Regulon makes this like perfect cross into the middle. It's such a nice ball to Kane, and Kane heads it home. And in that in in that play, it's just really quick build up from Tottenham, really using the pace of Son and Regulon and that distribution. But then on the other side of the ball with West Ham, Ogbonna and Cresswell are there. They're in the position with Kane. And they're just not tight enough to him and don't get up off the ground nearly in time. It's like kind of fundamental basic stuff on a defensive end. But Spurs are up 3-0. I don't want to say that it was fundamental error that led to this goal. This was a goal that I think would have been scored probably even if those guys were tight. But I did note that down. Like they were just not... Uh, not switched on and that sort of felt like the first half for West Ham is that mentally they were just not connecting as a group and I wonder I wonder keep this in the back of your mind this is David Moyes first game off the armchair back in from zoom coaching David Moyes maybe you need to go back to virtual (laughs) he forgot his slippers once he put his slippers on second half I'm sure things were (laughs) evened out (laughs) Uh, I I wonder what he said at the break because West Ham came out the gate really hot. I thought that they um, looked the better side in the second half. And it seemed like Tottenham, I I don't want to necessarily say that Tottenham had switched off, but it felt like Tottenham was like, okay, we're up by three goals. We can be a little bit more complacent here. We don't need to press so high. We don't need to worry about distribution so high. Um, So, there's a chance almost immediately where Fornals m- misses this header. He was offsides, but he had this really nice chance, like right coming out the gate. Um, yeah. And 
I thought also in the second half, Declan Rice really started to get into this game. It seemed like he was really starting to find his feet. Uh, he was defending a little bit better, but much more than that, he was really distributing well. And I think he is in that buildup to that play that goes to Fornells that didn't end up converting. But West Ham's really starting to show some confidence. Um, and Tottenham, and we'll talk about them a little bit more later, but the Tottenham center backs in this game were pretty poor. Um, I have some thoughts about that, so I'll, I'll come back to talking about them as we get into some of the goals. I think late into the game, um, Tottenham is sort of like, okay, like, you know, we're still up 3-0, um, but they have a nice chance. Uh, Harry Kane hits the bar in the 78th minute, and it's like, oh, like, you know, that fourth goal really, really would have absolutely locked the game away. Um, this is also the, the Premier League debut for uh, Gareth Bale comes in late in this game and will feature kind of prominently uh, later on. So West Ham then scores in the 82nd minute to pull one back. Balbuena, their defender, um, he gets a, a, a header goal. It's a solid goal. Ball in from Cresswell on a set piece. There was a foul on the left-hand side. I don't remember the Spurs player who fouled him, but Cresswell sends in this ball, and it's just set piece. Balbuena heads at home. 3-1, still not that much time left. If you're Spurs, you're feeling pretty good. And then there's an own goal in the 85th minute. Um, Suchek yeah. has a, such a nice no-look pass. Um, the, the stupid English announcers, whenever a player does a no-look pass and they're wanting to like relate to the NBC dumb American like football fans, they're like, oh, it's like Patrick Mahomes throwing a no-look pass. It's like, yo, don't make this – don't – don't pander to me. I don't need this <laughs> shit. Like, shut up. Um, and they said that then. I was like, oh. But he makes this great no-look pass. And Kufal ends up picking it up, crosses it in. And Davison Sanchez, he, he's doing the right thing as the center back. He's trying to head it head it wide of the goal. And it, it's just a clinical finish. He puts it right into clinical. the Clinical. It's be honestly clinical. And That's tough. And then... Tottenham is like, okay, it's 3-2. We need to, you know, kill this game out. And in the 92nd minute, Gareth Bale had really an amazing chance. Um, and he, honestly, he just kind of blows it. Like, I, he, he gets by the West Ham defender, has this really nice dribble to cut in, and then he just misses wide. And it's like, oh, like such a nice moment for him, almost like on his, you know, return debut for Tottenham. And you could tell he was like, like really like felt like oh like i wish i had hit that but dude he's like smiling too because it's like okay like i wish i'd hit that but you know it's still three two we're in injury time and then aurier fouls snodgrass the west ham um midfielder just kind of a silly foul like not really any need for it out on the left and the ball gets crossed in off the set piece from that foul I think Harry Kane is the one actually who heads it out. It's a great clearance coming out. Um, and Harry Winks just like can't quite get on to the end of the ball. And Lanzini hits, uh, honestly, I think it's the goal of the year so far. I haven't seen a, a nicer strike from a player. Laser. Beyond the, look eight, that up. Beyond the 18. Look at, it, it, literally, just. It, it was, it was. Uh, an absolute stunning goal and you should rewatch yeah. it again and again and again listener just because it's like it's perfection and mm-hmm. you know if you're 
if you're Tottenham in that moment, it's sort of like you kind of just have to shrug your shoulders. There's really nothing that they could have done. They're clearing the ball. They're kind of doing the things they're supposed to do, and that's a one-in-a-million strike that Lanzini hits. Um, David Moyes, immediately after, he's, like, jumping up and down on the pitch. No more zoom. He's free. His, like, little <laughs> leap that he tries to do, he gets, like, maybe it's so funny. a centimeter off the ground. It's, like, <laughs> this little, like, skip. Um, and, yeah, absolute scenes. Uh, Lanzini rips off the shirt. It's a draw. It's, it's, it's one point, but it really feels like a win for West Ham. Um, yeah, Th- thoughts on this game and, and from from you, Rodrigo. What were you thinking? Absolutely. So, first of all, I don't really feel like I can put a whole lot of blame on Tottenham for the tie here, the late game tie. The three goals that they scored were were each deserved. And then the two goals that, aside from the own goal, that that are scored by West Ham are just great goals. I mean, it's a free kick with a really nice header in the back. It's a laser in, like, the final minutes of the game. I mean, both of those are just fantastic goals. I mean, I don't know. You know, like, for example, I wouldn't blame a keeper for not being able to stop, you know, some – because it's like if you do a good enough job, there's nothing – you know, it's just – what can you do about it? And then the the own goal, I mean, that's really sad. It's an unfortunate one, but – Again, you know, it's just a bad mistake. Um, and, and so for me, I, I, I think the score doesn't tell the whole story for me. Bale, Bale definitely chokes his opportunity at the end. He breaks Ogbonna's ankles in, like, the box. But just, I don't, you know, it's his first game back. I don't know. You know, it's, 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 I'm sure it's a little bit new, but he really, he really boosts that one. The one thing I was thinking about was just kind of what's the structure here? What's working so well for Tottenham? Because I really did feel like for most of the game, although the beginning of the second half, I definitely kind of shifted gears, I think, for West Ham. Um, I think for most of the game, Spurs looks really does look really excellent. effective. Excellent. And it, I thought what, what they really did well was they – they invited West Ham to press forward. They would when they played out of the back, they would really draw West Ham as deep as they could. Kane would shift back, you know, this false nine that everyone's talking about. He would drift back into the midfield and then they would just play a direct ball to him in that space and expect him to kind of make the play, you know, not just not just looking for Harry Kane in the box for the header that they know that he can score, but really looking for him to be a facilitator of play. And it really worked well for them um, to have him receiving the ball out of the air in that middle space. Um, so I, I, I thought that was really, it was just kind of cool to watch them facilitate that, that, that kind of play. I, at the end of the first half, um, I, I felt like what I was seeing was a bigger theme for like the league as a whole, which is like we've seen that there are these teams that like to press and possess high. And what I see right now is teams being successful by finding a way to beat that. And there are a few ways you can beat that. There's long balls over the top. You don't even have to look before you pass it. Just send the bomb and know that that's what you're looking for. You see a few of those come out of this game. And then well-timed runs that beat the the beat the high line. If you get that's something that Austin Villa did very well against Liverpool, and we've seen and we've seen some good runs. If you can do those two things against teams that are kind of falling, I think into this kind of rhythm of like, oh well, let's let's press high and, and play a high line and like not let them get out because like that's I don't know that's like in style right now. It's very in right now. Uh-huh. It, it's falling it's falling apart to really simple stuff. It's like well-timed runs and deep balls um, and. By seducing teams that are pressing into into your back line, 
so that you can play direct balls, even if it's directly to Kane in the midfield, I think is a very effective way uh, to play right now. Um, so I, I think that's great. The one thing that I think why this why does this work so well for Harry Kane? When he is a facilitator in the middle of the field, he's kind of inherently in a trailing run position, right? Because he's going to play the ball wide, likely, and then start to make his run. So he can see the whole field, which is great because he's very good at seeing where the space is anticipating and then showing up and where the space is going to be, whether that's a header in the box or space outside the 18, or a combination play. He's always trailing. Um, and as a defensive line, that's a that's a run that's harder to mark because you're paying attention to the players that are right there with you, and you can't give you all of your attention to Harry Kane, who's a little bit deeper, kind of running in later. Um, I think that just works really well for him. Give him some vision of the field, or some 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 a view of the field, and let his let him use his vision to figure out where to go. I thought that was really well done. Um, yeah, I think they're I think they're strong. I was a, it was unfortunate. I feel like kind of unlucky for them to drop the ball here and end up with a tie. Uh, but um, I don't think everyone's gonna hit late game lasers like Lanzini. So <laughs> you know maybe maybe this isn't something to be too ashamed of as you move forward. Uh, but unfortunate two points drop there uh, for for the Spurs. I I wanted to read you a quote from Jose Mourinho from his press conference that I think please really hits this game. In, in the right way. He says, he was asked, like, you know, are you disappointed? What do you think about the result? And he says, that's football. In a negative way for us, in a positive way for them, but that's football. It's easier for me to praise them than to criticize us. And, you know, we make jokes about Jose being a troll all the time, but honestly, he really hits it in this game. It's just, yeah, it's true. you know, you, sometimes you don't catch Couldn't the breaks. He also, yeah. later in that same press conference, he pointed out something Tottenham has only conceded one goal from open play this year um, by his count. So, you know, not not including set pieces coming from penalties, corners, you know, PKs, right. but kind of the more randomness of the game. So I think, like, if I'm a Spurs fan, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, disappointed not to get to three points in the moment. But Spurs are really legit, and I think they're well-equipped to make a very strong run Top four and, and even beyond. Um, I will say one small note that when Gareth Bale came on, I thought Steven Bergwijn had a really nice game. Like, quietly, I thought he played really well. He has an engine, and he defends, and he's not afraid to tackle and win back the ball in the middle of the field. You know, he's a right winger, but Jose likes to sit so far back that he ends up getting involved in the play defensively a little bit more. And I thought he was excellent. And... You know, Gareth Bale comes on, and I'm not saying that at all that the goals are Gareth Bale's fault, but Gareth Bale is not going to do that sort of defensive work. And so I, I assume Bale will be the starter moving forward. Um, but I wonder how that will affect Jose's tactics and, and the shape that Tottenham plays. But Ber- Bergwijn is involved, I think, in two of the three goals for Tottenham. One of them, he wins the ball back on defense on the press, really distributes nice it to the middle. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what leads to the kind of open play on the left side. He also receives a ball, I think, that we they send out. He headers it back to the center of the field, I think, for Son or Kane, who then distributes it wide again. I, he, he was a part of both of those plays um, in, in a way that I noticed, and I, I agree. I thought he played a really good game. I would... I, I would not be unhappy if he continued to get good minutes in this. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, something to look forward, look, look, just to, to check in on as we move forward. 
Um, something for the meme Chester United fans to look for. Talking about this next game, Rodrigo. Oh my goodness! All right, so Manchester United Newcastle. Uh, the final score is Manchester United four, Newcastle one. That does not tell the story whatsoever. Um, so the game, the game is is. Uh, it's it's just another one of those kind of wacky starts for Manchester United. It's the first minute of the game. There's a cross into the 18 from the right-hand side, and Luke Shaw deflects the ball. De Gea's left standing. I mean, it, I, it was unexpected. I don't really blame De Gea at all. But just, I mean, just like, you know, circus-level stuff. Um, now, to their Newcastle's credit, it was a very quick buildup. And St. Maximin continues to be, like, he's the man for Newcastle in this game. They still don't create a tremendous amount of attacking power. But when he gets the ball with space, I mean, there was a few play. I mean, he dribbles, like, three Manchester United fans through the middle of the field, ends up getting a foul. I mean, he, he does crazy stuff in this game. The dude is kind of an, kind of just a like a force to be reckoned with. I mean, he finds space and is good with the ball at his feet. Um, but anyways, they are able to score this first goal early. Uh, and it, it seems like maybe we're going to be in for another long ride with a Manchester United, like, <laughs> you know, uh, circus here. But anyways, in the 18th minute, Bruno, Bruno Fernandez almost ties this game up. Um, it's extremely well played. He, he gets set up kind of at the top of the 18 on the left side and side. He tusses, t- plays a touch into Mata, who just passes it right back, and Bruno hits this beautiful shot, like upper 90 to the opposite side. But unfortunately, Mata was coming from an offside position, and so it's called back. But honestly, a beautiful shot, beautiful shot, and foreshadows his goal later in this game. Um, so then in the 22nd minute, just a few minutes later, Maguire gets a, gets a goal off a corner. Really not much to say here. It's just, it's textbook, set Piece gets up above the the other team, gets gets his head on the ball and it's a goal one one. So that's when it starts to feel like maybe this is going to be a little bit more of a of a, of a game. It's not going to follow in the you know the six or whatever the six one outcome we had previously. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot more, so I'll, I'll highlight. I'll just kind of fast forward to the second half. Um, there is this play in the fiftieth minute. St. Maximin dribbles into the 18. He seems to like just wriggle around like a snake at the end of the at the touchline and finds this impossible chip to Callum Wilson, who I mean, honestly, it was all so quick and hard to anticipate. I think he has some credit there for being in the right place at the right time. Um, but he gets a touch onto the ball, and De Gea has a beautiful save here. I mean, just it's got to be a pure reaction save. He drops. It's going low. One-handed deflection that puts it back out off, essentially off the line. Great work by, say, Maximin here. Callum Wilson really almost gets the goal, but, but uh, to top it all is the De Gea save. So really well done there. In the 57th minute, they call a PK uh, on a Rashford uh, dribble into the box. They didn't call it original initially. It goes to VAR. It's checked, and they give it to him. I think this is an extremely soft penalty kick that's given. By one angle, it looks like a little bit more of a PK than by the other by then by others. From what I can see, I think the ball is hit first there. And that the actual contact with Rashford is fairly soft. That said, there are some studs that he gets on 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 the shin. So I mean, I don't know. Maybe it looks a little worse than I think it actually is. Regardless, they give the PK. Um, but Bruno goes to take the penalty kick, and it's saved. 
Um, he does not do quite the same little stutter step thing. I wonder if that threw him off. Uh-huh. Uh, but it also just wasn't a great PK, um, and it's deflected out, so it stays 1-1. Uh, fast forward to the final minutes of this game, and you would think in a 4-1 game the goals would have come a bit earlier, but no. It's 1-1 all the way up to the 85th minute. Um, in the 85th minute, Bruno scores a goal, and it's, it's, it really is to his credit. This buildup is beautiful. Um, just watching that buildup alone, I think, is like a really, a really good part of this game to go back and, and highlight. So what happens... Uh, uh, Donnie Van de Beek is, ba- is on the field, and he creates a one-two combination with Mata. Um, or sorry, VD, sorry, him and Bruno have a one-two combination that finds Mata in the center of the field. Uh, Mata sends a ball through to find Rashford, but Bruno has started as soon as he makes that combination play initially a long run on the outside, and this is a really cool piece to pay attention to. So Rashford is taking the ball up the line, but kind of digging centrally, right? Going toward, drifting towards the 18. Bruno comes behind him, but also starts to drift towards the 18 as if to come over the right shoulder of Rashford. But at the last kind of second, diverts back out wide and overlaps Rashford. Rashford has a great skill here to kind of pass this ball, kind of back behind his other foot. And Bruno is there in space. This, to me, is like the textbook example of how overlap runs are so dangerous because as a player running behind the player with the ball, the defense has to try to anticipate which direction, you, where, which direction you're going to go, and you have control up to the last second about which side you're going to pop out, the right or the left. And he decides late to go left, and there's nobody there. Two touches, one to receive it, the second absolutely beautiful shot to the top 90 and the other opposite side it's not nearly as as far out as it was the earlier goal but the exact same location um and it's a beautiful puts them up to one kind of feels like that might be the end score line there to one but a few minutes later Aaron Wambasaka hits a fucking laser uh he drives inside um combines with Rashford when he gets it back snipes it just at one touch banger upper 90 it's 3-1. So now it feels like game in hand for for United. And the last goal is really kind of like, it almost reminds me of like a basketball game when they're running down the clock because there's just no way they can come up with 12 points. But they shoot it anyways and they like add a couple, like three points to the final score. Uh-huh. If you watch the replay of this goal, it's the 96th minute. Uh, Manchester United has the ball deep in their own half. They give it. They give it. I believe um, to to Bruno Fernandez, and he just sends a long ball. And if you looking at the Newcastle team, they're literally just standing there. I mean, the midfielders are just standing. No pressure on the ball. They just assume this game is over once the ball's hit. But there's no whistle, and Rashford just leaps onto the ball, gets it with tons of space, dribbles into the 18, beats the goalkeeper. It's four one. Stop padding. If you wanted to ask me what the true score of this game is, it's two one, and it ends after that Bruno Fernandez goal. Um, that's how I. That's like in terms of telling the story, that's definitely the way it's played out. Um, I, I I think that my 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 overall take on this game is that United looks slightly more dangerous than they did in the past, but mostly because some of their outside shots look a little bit more on target, and they're starting to get a little more combination play, mostly through Bruno Fernandez around the eighteen. 
He has got this, you know, this pass into Mata that comes back and shoots it from outside the 18. It's dangerous. He's able to make a couple runs into the box that are dangerous. My big thing for them is if that's really what they want to force, they really want to try that play, they need to give Donny Van de Beek more minutes. Because I think him and Bruno could probably find ways to combine around the 18 and make each other both look a lot better. Um, I think that's that's the that's absolutely the play they should make if that's the style of play they want to they want to pursue. But again, look at the goals that they score later in this game. These are counter opportunities. This is Rashford getting the ball in space. Um, this is a combination with with Wambasaka. You know these these are counter opportunities. And I know I say this now about every single team ever. It seems like just do yourself a favor and sit a little deeper and look for the long balls. That it's working really well across the table, across the whole thing right now. Those deep driven balls. Um, are are going to be valuable if the other defense is, is high or at their own half. I think that they should they should they should really try to play that way more effectively. Um, I didn't watch the PSG game against Manchester United, but I hear that they played deeper in that game. And if that's if that's the case, then all I got to say is that's exactly what I'm talking about. Play deeper, send long balls. That's what you have. Um, you know, Bruno can do that. Let's do that. And occasionally, sure. You know, you might have a nice combination with Bruno and I think somebody like Donnie in, around the 18 and you might find an opening for a shot. Um, but that, I think, is a more consistent way for them to play. To talk about Newcastle, St. Maximin's the guy. He's their guy. But at the same time, they really struggled to get out of their half in this in this game. They yeah. just, they just, the buildup wasn't there. And if they could get the ball to him and he could break through all the lines, then they were on a tear. But that didn't happen that often. It's a lot of pressure, a lot of weight to put on one guy. Uh, so... You know, I think that 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 to me wraps up the game. Um, I don't think they pl- I don't think United played much differently or necessarily much better than they did in the past. Um, Bruno played better uh, on an individual level. He created some stuff, um, but I, I still think they should be playing a different style of play. And if they're gonna try to play this way, they should put more minutes for 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 Von de Beek. Yeah, I don't don't have a whole lot to add from this game. Um, I think. I think you know going into the half, it seemed like this was a game that would have finished two one. And if you told me Newcastle won two one on kind of a weird goal, I wouldn't have been surprised. So I agree with your assessment in that sense. Um, I guess notably, Pogba was dropped for this game, and he was dropped at the PSG game. I think that's Ole, you know, doing some good man management. Pogba's been poor, and I think it sends a good signal that like. You know, if you're not going to really play well, if your form is down, then you're not going to play. And I think, I think that's a smart thing to do. Um, I guess the one other like kind of side, such a sideshow with United all year, Harry Maguire. The way that he, he's had some rough form, and the way that like English pundits talk about it is so annoying to me. Like people are talking about his mental health and talking about how like the club needs to support him and bring him up. All statements that I think are objectively true, but are never, ever, ever used to talk about any other player or very few other players in the league. Like, pundits love ripping players. They love ripping Pogba and talking about how, like, Pogba is the problem and and not playing well and all these things. And it's like Harry Maguire was, you know, doing some stupid stuff in Greece, and now we're going to talk about his mental health and we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. It's like, I, I... I don't mean to make things too political here, but I am hard pressed to see 
like the treatment of a black English player compared to a white English player or a black French player, like it, it just, it feels like the, the English media is really dominated by these older white players. And so they talk very nostalgically and give a lot of benefit of the doubt to players who happen to look like them. And it's, and it's like, they give him so much credit for scoring this goal off a header. Like, Oh, he's, he's fighting back the, the people who say he doesn't deserve to wear the captain's armor. It's like, he's a defender. Bro, yeah. Like, how about how about you try to like defend. keep a clean sheet? Yeah. You know, like how about how about you defend well? I mean, I get it. Scoring goals is a big deal, but if if that's his whole role on this team, that's that's a. I mean, that's, I, that's yeah. news to me. That's news to me. I didn't yeah. know that he was brought in for however much money to play for the header in the eighteen. <laughs> like, didn't think that that was the point. Um. So I I, I agree. I think that. People are trying to find a way to give him, like, yeah, yeah, he scored a goal, but that's not your job. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like that's not your job, and that's not that's not what the, he needs to perform. I think day to day for this team. Agreed. So that's where I want to see the success or the progress, at least. Um, I think maybe uh, we should move on to talk about a less exciting, pretty pretty mad game. Crystal Palace, Brighton. Crystal Palace won. Brighton won. I don't really have a ton to talk about in this game. I thought Brighton started off brightly. They started off well. They had some like good attacking-minded play. I think the, the announcer in the game was like, yeah, Brighton plays this really attractive brand of football under Graham Potter. That's like what the pundits kind of – like. that's what the announcers are. They're oh, attractive-looking football. And like they do play attractive-looking football, but like, you know, score some goals, please. Um, <laughs> you kind of got to do that. Uh they, it, the, the game then pretty quickly breaks down for um, Brighton, though. There's a penalty in the 17th minute on, on Lamptey. There's this cross coming in over the top. Townsend sends this ball in over the top. And um, it's a really pretty soft foul. There was really the softest, softest PK the whole season so far, hands down. Lamptey cannot weigh more than 140. And I, I can't remember who he pulled down. If he pulled down, was it it was Batshuayi or Schlupp? Yeah, it was ba- Batshuayi. Yeah, and Batshuayi has to be like a foot taller than him. So much bigger. Yeah. And he goes down right. on the slightest of touch. And it went to There's the- no hands either. You don't see him like, you know. It would be one thing if his hands were around him or choking him or something. He's barely touching the guy. A little, a little hand on the shoulder. And the ball was also kind of overhit too. So – all around strange. VAR reviews it, and then it wasn't called. Like it, it was still given. It was very yeah, odd. Um, not even a check. Not even a check. It wasn't even like, oh, go check the monitor in case. Nothing. It was just like, yep, yeah, go, go ahead. Bizarre. Zaha converts to put Crystal Palace up. Um, one one zero. It's a nice penalty. And yeah, and you know, Crystal Palace playing their four four two, and they're they're just really clear in what they're trying to do. They're just going to try to defend really tight. And hit the ball long and kind of go for the counter, sort of as as you've been preaching this whole episode. And Brighton is playing like they're they're playing with three center backs and their wing backs really pushing up very high to try to play a more possession based kind of interchange on the wings, cross it in, hope for a Mape kind of goal. That's that's really like the whole game is what what that looks like, and that's the whole game, and, and literally the whole Brighton game. Brighton not really being able to connect the last pass or the shot, and Crystal Palace like hitting some long balls but not really doing a whole lot. Um, I think the the 
only other little notes. Well, there is a goal for Brighton. Sorry, let me finish there. Um, of course. And it ironically comes from a long ball hit over the top by a defender. The Brighton player just, the defender hits it long and it goes right to a Crystal Palace defender. I think it's Kuyate. And it just kind of bounces off them. He doesn't control it. And then the ball comes to McAllister and McAllister just rips a nice goal. Uh, side note, McAllister kind of looks like if uh, Messi and Sergio Ramos had a kid and maybe like a little <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne in there too. <laughs> <laughs> Look at a picture of him. He look, looks weirdly like Messi. It freaked me out when I saw that. Um, but it's a nice goal, and it happens in injury time to Crystal Palace. Their players, you know, so defeated, collapsing down. They, they just dropped three pretty critical points for them. Um, but, yeah, I, I, this this game was, was, was bad. It was one side it was, yeah. doing what it, it should do, defending tight and trying to hit long and not doing – the attacking when it came to it particularly well, and another mm-hmm. side that like just doesn't really have the quality and the skill to play the, the the soccer they're trying to play. Yeah, it reminded me honestly of like a frustrating practice. Like, oh, I'm gonna work on attacking today. Uh, defense is gonna play like a man down. All right, we're gonna work on it. And my defense is like, oh, boring. Like we don't get to do much. And my attacking team is just struggling to like actually make it. Worth, you know, like they're struggling to actually <laughs> find success. That's what it felt like the entire game. And I looked up the expected goals on this game. If you take away the PK opportunity, according to Understat, Palace had expected goals of zero. <laughs> they had zero shots on goal outside of the freaking PK. Zero, uh, not even on goal, zero shots, period. On goal, off goal, blocked. They had zero. So, I mean, it's one thing to say, like, play the counter, right, and, like, sit deep. But you actually have to, like, you have to, you have to get the ball over there and shoot it. Like, you, you can't just sit and play defense. I mean, this was it was the most boring game ever. And it was kind of frustrating for me that Brighton didn't get to score more because I wanted some justice for how poorly Four. Palace was showing up Real in this poor. game. Like, Brighton, Brighton struggled, sure. But at least they were wriggling and giving it effort. Palace couldn't put two and two together. To, to find the opportunity to shoot, let alone score. Um, so expected goals of zero outside of the PK is absurd. I mean, that's absurd. That's, like, so bad. Um, and, like, I know they scored early, but that means – that doesn't mean – I mean, you had so much game to get a shot on goal. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's absurd to me. Absurd to me. Don't watch this game. <laughs> like, just – that, like, hard skip. Hard skip. I feel like both of these teams are going to be fun when they're playing big teams who, like, try to out-possess the ball. Like, when big clubs play against them and are are possessing a lot and they can kind of hit them on mistakes, that's going to be a lot of fun. But when, like, Brighton, Crystal Palace, like, a lot of these bottom-table teams start playing each other, ugh, eh, rough. Um, I get – that's a good transition to go to the next game. (laughs) A game that – this was the first 0-0 game of the year, hopefully the last. West Brom, Burnley, 0-0. Um, we're not going to talk about this game. It was so poor. It was such a bad game all the way around. The only thing that I have in my notes from this is that in the UK, due to some like financial bullshit with TV partnerships, people in the UK had to pay £15 to watch this game on, on live television. That is a 
an outrage. That is an atrocity. That is a crime. In my family, we have this thing where we'll like say someone and then you, you like say their name and you go comma war criminal. So like whoever they are, regardless of their connection, usually the government loosely, you just say war criminal. So per TV producer, TV executive in the UK, comma war criminal. I don't have the name to fill in that blank, but <laughs> we don't need it, dude. Research team, do the research, figure that out. Yeah. This is another one. Cross it off. Like terrible, terrible, terrible soccer. Couldn't I couldn't agree more with you. I, the one thing I really wanted out of this game was for Wood to score a goal so my fantasy team could edge their way through to a win. He had two opportunities. He missed them both. It was brutal. Just brutal. He it had it was just oh him floating ball. Nothing. He hit the bar, hit missed it wide, I think. That was it. Oh, so sad. Well, listener, um, we're gonna take a really quick break and when we come back we're gonna talk about game of the week, the Merseyside Derby. Okay, welcome back. We are going to talk about Liverpool-Everton. Um, huge game of the weekend, our game of the week, and I'm going to kick it over to you, Rodrigo. Take us through it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, my pleasure. Um, this, was a, this was a great game. Um, Classic. Both teams, both teams, you know, we've been talking about Everton kind of being in form, James being a key player there. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin being a man on fire. Liverpool, you know, struggling a little bit here with, you know, a couple injuries, people who were tested positive for COVID. But, you know, we have people back for this game. um, And exciting to see Thiago get a start as well. Um, I think this game, up to what we had talked about so far, had everything, had all of the inertia to be a really, really good game. And it was great to see it actually play out that way. So um, I'm just going to kind of jump into the highlights, and we'll just go through this kind of chunk by chunk. Um, I have some some pieces I kind of want to drop into about, you know, what I saw in the first half and then kind of my overall view of the game, but I think we'll just kind of just take it from the beginning. So this game starts super high energy. Both teams are look at, looking to play. Liverpool comes out with their press, and their press is looking pretty airtight. Um, their top three putting a lot of pressure on the ball, and then people just sliding into man marks behind them, like canceling options right and left. Um, and it's it's looking really good because it's forcing some long balls that seem to be pretty easy to intercept. Van Dyke has a couple of fouls early on uh, at, at half field, kind of making it clear, like, if you're going to play the ball out, we're going to challenge it, and you got to watch out because <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the king around here. Um, two minutes into the game, Mane scores. Uh, there's this kind of like four pass combination. Um, the ball is coming on the right and they make this beautiful combination to quickly transition over to the left side. And this is kind of that sense of urgency that I've kind of mentioned earlier. Um, like they get the ball in possession, but they're, it's clear when they get the ball on one side, they're going to transition the ball to the opposite side of the field as quickly as possible. Be that an air ball over the top. Short passes in transition, but this is a great example of that. They play one, two, all the way across. They end up getting a ball to, uh, to to Robertson, who's running into the box. He takes one touch to kind of beat the defender, maybe a slight lucky deflection there, but gets it passed. And the second one is just the short, driven cross to Mane, who connects it, puts it right under the bar, 1-0 Liverpool. 
they're looking hot from the beginning and and honestly their transition play is like excellent like every time they're getting the ball they're looking to change the point of attack trailing runs are always into the box and if there are gaps in the transition for the defense they're just going to go ahead and plug right away into those so looking really really good then there's this huge thing that I'm sure we want to talk about with some depth which is six minutes into the game there's a cross into the back of the six and Virgil van Dyke goes up to for 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 a header um Pickford completely loses the ball since he's turning essentially to try to defend this completely loses sight of the ball and kind of comes out I don't even, I mean, his legs split in this kind of scissors fashion and essentially just full body tackles uh, Virgil van Dyke, makes really no play on the ball. The ball is nowhere in sight. uh, And you can see right away that this was not a good position for Virgil van Dyke. His leg is extended. He ends up, Pickford's body essentially lands on his knee and kind of, you know, puts all the weight pushing it in the opposite direction. And as soon as Van Dyke hits the ground, he's in a lot of pain, um, and and it, it's obvious that this is not only a, a like a bad tackle, but probably caused some significant harm. Um, as we learned later, you know this was an ACL tear, and I mean it's a textbook way to get an ACL tear. I mean all that pressure applied to your knee in the opposite direction. That's not going to go well. Um, some so, some updates today, just to jump in real yes. quick. Please. There's some concern, some reports concern that it could be more serious than just an ACL tear. So, you know, clearly want to, want Van Dyke to be healthy back in the league. Such a star, such a key player. And you, right. you never want to see anyone get hurt, but especially a player of his stature, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the way that everything plays out is really bizarre as well because because Virgil Van Dyke was making a run to the box in, in, from an offsides position – they're initially looking for this to be a foul for a PK, but they determined that it couldn't be a PK because the offsides happened first. But somehow, just overlook the opportunity to see whether this foul was worthy of a card all by itself. Because obviously, regardless of whether you know there was an offsides beforehand, you can't just you know you can't beat somebody up after a, after an offsides because you know yeah, that's your opportunity. I didn't to get do that so. at all. I didn't understand that at all. And the announcers, no, it, I didn't think understood it when they were talking about it either. No, the announcers were all curious to what happened there, assuming that the play had been reviewed for that. And then later on, essentially got word from the folks in the VAR booth that, no, they just hadn't looked at it for that. They had essentially just overlooked the opportunity to consider whether this was worthy of a card. Um, this, this, to me, is a red card. Straight. I mean, goalkeepers, goalkeepers get more of an opportunity to be physical and are protected more because of the way, the role that they play in the game. But in this situation, I don't see Pickford playing the ball whatsoever, and the tackle is dangerous. I mean, there's just no way it's not dangerous. It's an extremely dangerous tackle, like in 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 kind of like fundamentally conceptual terms. Like you can't do that. You can't throw your whole body onto another player, kind of in like with with no with no continuity with the ball, no connection with the ball, no nothing, and then land on him, especially when he's so vulnerable like you can't do that um if another player in the field were to make that kind of contact with a player in the up in the air red card uh without it's a red card and it's pretty clear to me that that should be a red card but you know 
I could understand in the heat of the game if there had been a yellow card, not a red card, and, and then you know, further you know review later, I've been like, oh no, like you know, maybe this should have been a red and it was just yellow. But no card whatsoever was bizarre to me. Um, the fact that it didn't come to mind for the ref on the field, which I believe was Michael Oliver, or or the VAR folks checking that it was bizarre. But they temporarily go down to ten men as they're trying to kind of evaluate the situation. And Everton kind of has a little bit of a surge there, uh, obviously, because, you know, they're a man up. Um, So uh, Calvert-Lewin has a header from this wonder cross uh, during that time that he ends up putting over the bar. Um, But it seemed to me to speak to kind of what was going to be the challenge from here on out. I mean, uh, Calvert-Lewin is great in the air. I think his thing above all else is that he is better than any defender and pretty much anyone else I've seen at reading the ball and meeting at its highest possible point and getting ahead on it. That's just like what he does. This is his bread and butter. And without Virgil van Dijk there, uh, I didn't know that there was anybody that was going to make that matchup extremely tough for him. And so that was a clear to me right away. is like, that's going to be tough if he can't come back to the game. And of course he does not. Um, so it's 1-0 at that point. In the 18th minute, though, there's a corner kick here uh, for um, Everton. And Michael Keane essentially just gets up, puts it in. It, to me, Fabinho does a terrible job marking this corner. Uh-huh. He doesn't really leave the ground to defend it in the air. Um, he's kind of out of position, doesn't read the ball well. And it's essentially a straightforward strike, I think, uh, for, for Keane to put this goal away. Yeah, I um, well, I was thinking the exact same thing, and I think can connect it to that. You know, if Virgil Van Dyke isn't going down and has to be replaced by Joe Gomez, who I'm not faulting Joe Gomez for his goal, but if Van Dyke is on the pitch, does this goal happen? Like, is the marking structure different? Is Van Dyke organizing different? Like, who's going where? I kind of think that Van Dyke would be the one picking up Keane because Keane is the target man. He's their big center back, and Van Dyke plays the you know, opposite role. So it's tough. It's, it's tough for Liverpool. Also kind of when I was watching this goal, I wrote down in my notes that should Adrian have saved that? Like it did come in real, real hard and fast. And it, he got his hands on it kind of like bent his hands back and went in. And I'm like, you know, again, hard to say, but like if Allison is there, does he punch that out? Like he was just a second off and like, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, I hear you. I, I, I agree. I had the same feeling. It, it doesn't look like an impossible goal to save. I don't know that I can fault him for it. Same. But if Allison is in there or if Pickford from the other side of the field is in the box, I think I think both of them block that. Yeah. Um yeah. so a tough situation for him, and I think I have to put the I think I have to put the responsibility on that on the defender, but certainly was a possible save there that he just couldn't quite. And honestly, would have been huge for him, I think, to have that confidence of, like, stopping, uh, you know, showing up for his defenders when they when they make a mistake. I think that would go a long way for Adrian. But fortunately, that ties it up 1-1 for Liverpool. Or unfortunately for Liverpool, that ties it up 1-1. Now, we go forward a little bit in time. In the 24th minute, um, Trent uh, has a free kick. It is spicy as all hell. Uh, Henderson is standing in front of the ball, um, and they're having kind of almost like this this very uh, exciting conversation about like what they're going to do with it. The whistle is blown to play, and still they continue to talk. Henderson almost seems to kind of be trying to fake out the defense by continuing his conversation, and suddenly rolls the ball to his left. 
uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold comes in, bangs a beautiful bending ball to the top left corner or over and around the wall. And Pickford gets a great save. I mean, great save. you're gonna you're gonna see this kind of throughout the, this game. We talked about Pickford possibly being a weak link, weak link for Everton. In this game, he absolutely keeps them in the game. Several amazing saves. And again, if there's a red card played here, he's out of the game. And I think that alone, uh, I don't think anyone. I don't know that any. I don't know that a backup keeper is saving that in this situation. Like I, don't, I just don't. Pickford has a great game this game, outside of, of course, this kind of obscene foul. Um, but he saves that one as you know first of of several um, that I think was just a, a kind of amazing play on his part. A little take on that in a weird way. I think when Pickford doesn't have expectations put on him, he can perform really well. And when you're playing against Liverpool, the kind of the expectation, the base expectation is they're going to score on you. So in some ways, I feel like that kind of frees him up. It's like. You know, we're, we're, yes. we're, we're underdogs. There's not really a real expectation that I'm going to be able to keep out a Trent Alexander-Arnold whip shot. And I think, like, in some way, like, I know it's it, it, it almost sounds backwards, but I think that, like, that helps a player like him get back into his confidence. But, yeah, it was an amazing save. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the rest of this half, we can kind of sum up with Liverpool dominates possession and kind of dominates the game, but every time Everton get the ball high on the field, they're feisty. I mean, um, you know, uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin is, is, is on fire this game. He's a danger every time the ball is in or around him. And James is playing extremely well. He has several beautiful through balls. He has this no look through ball in the 40th minute. That's just like, it's <laughs> just, it's just spicy as hell. Um, and the balls that they're getting into the box are all dangerous. The last five minutes, there's kind of this barrage of like corners, like deflected balls that keep going back for corners, and then a bunch of crosses, and it, it looks a little dangerous there. Uh, or maybe I should say a little bit more than a little dangerous uh, for <laughs> Liverpool. Um, and, you know, I think in this first half, just kind of looking at it as a whole, Liverpool is doing an excellent job pressing the ball. Um, they are looking tight. The pressure on the ball is great. The man marking behind the initial lines of pressure are also excellent. They're denying channels um, and creating a lot of 1v1s, but because they're denying the channel for the pass, there's just not a lot of options. And this is really kind of constricting Everton's ability to get out of their own box, um, which I think gives them a lot more of that possession. When they win the ball, they're also just being very direct about like going to space. They're changing the point of attack every time they win the ball. They win the ball on the right side, they're immediately going to the left. They win the ball on the left side, they're immediately going right. And they're going diagonally, which for a defense is like one of the hardest things because you're having to drop but also shift. And there's a lot of opportunity there to kind of leave a man unmarked or miss a trailing run. And they're doing a great job of that. They look very, very dangerous. So that was exciting for them. I also noticed that Henderson is moving up into the attack frequently. He's frequently the trailing run running into the box for crosses. He also starts to make these kinds of runs wide and outside to almost become like the outside mid, kind of taking up that space from Trent and Alexander-Arnold. So he kind of comes out in front of him a lot. And that was kind of interesting. They're leaving Tiago in a deeper space. And in the first half, I don't see a ton from Tiago. Um, you know, that, that makes me, you know, it doesn't catch my eye a lot. But I think in the second half, you see a little bit more of his play. And it's mostly because there's some more deeper lying play play that happens there but he's definitely the guy I see holding more and Henderson has been kind of freed up to go forward into the attack um Everton kind of struggled to break the press like I said but Hamas is their outlet pass every time they can get ball the ball to Hamas kind of especially you know wide 
he is finding great balls through and he's dirty enough with the ball at his feet that like he's making defenders at least have to play off of him or foul him which is either way is really kind of playing to help alleviate the pressure so doing a great job there um Richarlison is is a bit ineffective um and I think in a way it's because he's kind of playing the opposite side from Jaime so he's just not getting the outlet passes to him as often Mm -hmm. um but doesn't look to be getting that and, and like I said, because the press is effective, it, it's kind of negating the through balls to him. Uh, so then we get to the second half, um, and Everton start kind of with a bit more energy here and a bit more possession. Um, and there's this great ball from from Hamez, a cross field switch, kind of leads to this driven cross to Calvert Lewin, and uh, he, he touches it, but but it's blocked by Adrian. And it, was, it was well defended there. Um, and then in the 50, 59th minute. Hamas gets across into the back of the six, and Richarlison headers one off the post. It was this beautiful ball sent in. Um, I, again, like, Hamas is the man, and he continues to find a way to get open or get a foul or, you know, get out of trouble. I mean, he's doing an excellent job not only of being a threat but maintaining himself. You know, it's one of those, like, you know, I, I can't help you if I if I don't help myself first. He does a great job of finding balance there. He He's... One of the best, I mean, he like I was thinking about this as soon as I was watching, I was like, what are my favorite signings from the window? He's top, top signing for me. Immediate impact, a core player, pillar for this Everton team. Um, now, Liverpool's possession starts to seem a little bit less urgent as we start to head into like the 60th to 70th minute. Um, Thiago's sitting a little deeper. Right, like I said, and they're starting to be a little bit more play out of the back. Um, and 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 like I said, Henderson's kind of going out wide and driving in for these crosses. Uh, and so there, there's a little bit of that. And then we get to the 71st minute where we get our second goal for Liverpool, um, which which is which is a Salah goal. Uh, it's it's a cross into the box from Henderson. Um, like I said, who's been punching out wide kind of frequently here. And it gets deflected back to Mina, uh, and and then Salah's there for this one-touch strike. And I, it's kind of incredible because he's kind of flat-footed in a certain sense. Like, he's just standing there, and the ball's bounced right back to him. But it's instinctually one-touch banger bottom left. Really nice hit. Outside of the foot. That goal. Really nice goal. Outside of the foot. Yeah, I, I, what you were saying about Thiago, I think I, I had written down in my notes watching him play in this game. Tiago makes the passes that Wijnaldum literally never does. Like, Tiago has a much more forward mindset. Like, he, he, he sees the game a lot more clearly, I think, than Wijnaldum and is the kind of player who wants to create moving forward. I just see Wijnaldum make so many, like, side-to-side passes and, or, like, little passes going forward. But Tiago is so much more incisive and able to cut in between the lines and kind of break down the lines a little bit. I think he's such a big upgrade in that position um, for for Liverpool for that exact reason. Yeah, but that strike from Salah was that was very it was really nice. It, it was just like you know clinical. clinical. I mean, the definition of clinical. Yeah, I mean, it was such. It, it looks in a certain sense easier than it was the ball bouncing right to you in the box. But that is one of the hardest things to to to, to be able to hit a bouncing ball to you 
off of a reaction, you know, while you're kind of standing there, not know, not sure what to anticipate, you know, there was no way for him to like distribute his weight and get ready for that shot. He just had to rip and he did, and he did it beautifully. Um, so that, that puts them up to one. Um, then in the 76th minute, uh, uh Matip header is blocked by Pickford. Amazing. This was, uh, f- Oh my God. It was a great header. Um, Pickford is keeping, like I said, is keeping Everton in this game. That right there, I think, is a goal nine times out of ten. Um, and and like I said, if he gets the red card, I I thought that at that moment, like if if Pickford isn't in the goal, I think that's that's game. I think that's three one Liverpool exactly. Um, but he gets the beautiful save there, keeping it two one. And then four minutes later, um, Calvert Lewin shows up. You knew he hadn't scored yet, and you knew that he needed he needed to show up. That just he's on a hot streak. The man is literally on fire. So, kind of poor defending here by Trent Alexander Arnold. He, he he gets caught in no man's land. There's a ball played out wide on the on the I guess the left if you're thinking of it from Everton's perspective, um, and he, there's not pressure on the ball. And then there's a forward run. Um, I can't remember. I think it was uh, who's it? It was. Um, I think it's Dina on the left for Everton. Yes, it, it was Dina on the left. He he makes a run and he gets caught not chasing Dina down the line, but kind of just hesitating. And then the ball's played immediately. And now he's like a good three, four steps behind Dina. So Dina essentially rides the ball to the to, to in and then sends this cross uh to, to Calvert Lewin on the six. And there are two defenders there. Gomez is a little farther forward, essentially, to mark the space. But if you look at this play, really, Calvert-Lewin is the only threat. And at, at the very least, Rabo's there, but doesn't really go up for the ball. He's behind Calvert-Lewin. He's not ball side on the cross. He isn't able to really make uh, contest the ball. And Calvert-Lewin kind of just gets a ball by himself, which is quite obviously the thing you don't want to have happen. And he ends up putting that in the back of the net. 2-2. I, 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 I got to say... Virgil van Dyke being out, I'm not saying he would have necessarily been in the right position to, to defend that ball, but somebody to defend the air ball is really all Liverpool needed to wrap up this game. If they had defended both of those headers better, if Fabinho had gone up in the air or been in a better position, if Robo had been able to at least push Calvert-Lewin off the ball, make it a little bit harder, deflect even the header, something, this game is locked up scoreless. Uh, because while Everton does play really well and they do have some chances, they don't have nearly as much possession or opportunity as Liverpool, and, and and I think those those were the two moments when they just needed somebody to show up, someone who could physically win the battle for the air. I mean, battle in the air there, and they don't. A couple minutes later, though, Pickford again keeps Everton in the game. There's a shot from Mane that is deflected, and then uh, Jota kind of hits a ball that ends up kind of leading to a Mane header again, and Pickford is able is there to block the shot and keep them in the game. And then finally, it seems like the game is going to end with, you know, 2-2, and there's this beautiful combination play. Mane is out wide, kind of finds a space behind the midfielder, in, but outside of the defensive line. There's a ball played into him, and he receives the ball, but plays it back. And Henderson is running into the 18 and hits it with his left foot. And it's not beautiful, but it has a lot of spin on it. And it's low, and it's a one-touch shot. So the keeper, so you know, Pickford has to have a reaction save. Goes down, 
gets a hand on it, but so much spin that it pops up in the air and just kind of continues to go into the goal and Pickford can't get up fast enough to, to keep it back out. VAR checks this for offsides. And I'm thinking, well, I don't even know what there is to check. Henderson like hit it from like, you know, behind six defenders. I mean, there's just, there's <laughs> nothing there, but they're looking at Mane. The, the picture they show you. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Is uh, there's no, it's it's so it's completely unclear Asinine. what is offsides, <laughs> what is offsides, and more and even more so, I think the biggest thing is that the piece of his body that they seem to be framing this around is his arm, which last time I checked was didn't even part of the check because he can't score with his arm. Yeah. So you can't right. So there's no but there's no part of his body that could be even relatively close to that line that was a scoring part of the body and and then his arm is essentially next to him it's just so so bizarre that they're that they call this off as an offsides i i i think they got this wrong like a hundred percent um and it denies this really beautiful goal that like honestly would have kind of like i don't know it kind of wrapped up the game for me in a way that you know felt like what soccer does so well sometimes is kind of you build this narrative about how the game is going and, and how it all comes to comes to a close. And it just kind of denied that closure, from my experience at least, watching the game. It was just like, how could that be offsides? Like just thinking about that as the game ended and it kind of distracted from what I thought was like a really, really good game all told. Um, you know, overall, uh, I thought the game was was even in a certain extent, but Liverpool definitely was the dominant team in this game. I think they quote unquote deserved the win. There is no real deserving the win for the way I look at it. The game is the game, and and it, it is what it is. Like think about Tottenham's tie. Like did they deserve to win that game? I mean, no more than no more than West Ham for those beautiful goals, right? So there's no deserved, but there's something about this that doesn't feel quite right. The red card, I think, that should have been pulled out early. Uh, Virgil van Dijk getting injured is a terrible loss for them in this game and obviously going forward. Um, you know, but at the same time, I don't want to take away from a really great game from Hamas, who's an excellent claim, uh, playmaker, and, and Calvert-Lewin, who's literally just on fire. I mean, he scored a goal in what every consecutive, I mean, every single game thus far. He's done it consistently, and people still can't seem to stop him. Um, and, you know, I think that... I think that this is really interesting to see Liverpool playing with his with Henderson going farther forward and wide and leaving Thiago to kind of hold in the middle and distribute the ball. I think Liverpool played excellently this game. I think they had great great That's transition. True. When they won the ball, they found ways to get dangerous quickly. I was really confident and feeling good about them. It, it with 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 Virgil van Dijk being out for essentially this season and maybe even longer than that. It, it does bring some concern about how they're going to deal with what was clearly, to me at least, their biggest weakness, which was aerial balls in the back. You know, they need to be able to address that if they wanna if they wanna maintain a title. I think this year. Yeah. So it's something they're going to have to really think about and and maybe work on if they want to keep it keep it tight there. I I guess just a few points to add. Um, I think with Trent. How many games in a row are we going to see teams exploit the space behind him and score? Um, I, it's becoming kind of the recipe to score in Liverpool. That happened in the second goal for Calvert-Lewin. And if you're going to be a defender, a right-back 
kind of got to defend. Like, you got to figure out that half of the game. And I, I, it's interesting because he's such a highly rated player, but so much of that comes from him going forward. And, like, yeah, that, that needs to be sorted out for Liverpool. Um, the VAR question, I think we've talked about this with some other friends, and I, I think the idea has been talked about of just VAR should be measuring from the player's feet. And it should be put measuring from the front or the back of the defender's foot that's closest to the goal and the front or the back of the striker's foot that's closest to the goal. Because, yeah, like, what's the point of offsides? It's to stop a competitive advantage from, like, you cherry-picking behind the line. And, yeah, your hip being ahead of the defender's, like, elbow doesn't do anything. It's, like, it has to do with where your feet are and your body position comes from your feet. That's your ability to run. So, like... It, it was tragic to see that get called in the way that it was. I have absolutely no idea whatsoever what they saw in that picture that caused them to be like, oh, it's clear offsides. Um, I think the, the one thing from your summary that um, we, you, didn't, you didn't mention, I thought is good to point out, is really late in the game, Richarlison got a straight red card for that tackle on Tiago. Oh, yeah. And Whew, it was... I about that. I, I, I think that throughout the whole game, Everton had been playing very physical, like Jordan Pickford, that foul. But their midfield players really, really fouling a lot. And I thought Michael Oliver, um, the referee for this game, was terrible and did a really bad job um, stopping that and just allowed progressively harder and harder fouls to go. And it culminates with the straight red for Richarlison. Three-game ban. That's going to be tough for Everton. But honestly, he could have broken Thiago's leg in that tackle. And the, yeah. it, it was a really dangerous, really careless, really reckless play. And it was after the whistle had been blown on a previous foul. Yeah. The, it, ball was dead. Ball wasn't there. It was so late. It was like it was almost like Thiago was getting set up to take the the – kick from the from the foul that had already happened and Richardson's still barreling in I I think like yeah so you know refereeing in in the Premier League you you have to slow that kind of down earlier give out a lot more cards be a lot firmer and, and stop that buildup because terrible um and I think on the Everton side uh I was watching Andre Gomes a lot in this game because I've seen James like mm-hmm. we really know what he can do and I think you you were you nailed it talking about him. Um, I thought Andre Gomes defended really well, and I think he's positionally really smart and is able to find himself both in the space to interrupt the build-up play from the other side and also in space to create. He just like can't hit the long ball properly. He hit it too long like so many times. It's like time and time again, you were talking about Richarlison not getting the service, and he's the one who's supposed to be hitting those to Richarlison, and they're just like, 10, 15 yards too long. And I think tuning that out, like, you know, getting that a little bit sharper, that could be money. Because I thought positionally yeah. he played very smart, but he just was missing the final ball. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, like like you said, it's not like there's a deserving team, but it, it would have been nice to have that kind of conclusion. But this is an instant classic. This will be a Premier League classic that people will watch later on. It will get rerun, like replayed on TV. It's very much that kind of game. So if you get if you haven't seen it, strongly recommend checking it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, we're going to take one last final quick break, and we're going to do some rapid-fire predictions when we come back. 
All right, we are going to do some rapid-fire predictions for week six. Got some exciting games coming up. Um, I think let's start with our guaranteed three points. Where do you see three points coming without a doubt? It pains me to say it. Liverpool, Sheffield United. Uh, Liverpool, I think, is going to absolutely route Sheffield United. Um, they're, you know, Virgil van Dijk being out aside, uh, Liverpool has looked really, really solid in this last game. And if they can pull that same kind of play together, Sheffield United is going to have a very, very hard time, um, with, with that attack. I, I, I don't think they're going to have a lot of opportunities to counter either. Their press from Liverpool has been so good in this game. I really see them struggling with that. What about you? I like that pick. Um, I'm going to say Burnley Tottenham, three points for Tottenham. Uh, in previous years, I feel like this would be a game where Spurs would kind of stumble. This is this screams like Gareth Bale announcing himself, easy brace. This will be a big win for Tottenham, and I, I think, um, yeah, it, it it will be the beginning of like a, a real good run of games for them. I have a feeling. So I'm picking three points for for Spurs. What about? I agree with you there. What about underdog? <sighs> underdog. This is this is a tough one. Um, I. I think that there are a few games here that I feel like could could go the other way. I have this – now, I, this isn't my choice, but I have this sneaking suspicion that Fulham might be Crystal Palace. Uh-huh. Crystal Palace looks so soft in this last game. And Fulham, I mean, you know, they have their challenges. But if Mitrovic comes in and just – Converts <laughs> like, one? Yeah, converts one of the Fulham few chances he gets, I could see them pulling out a win against Crystal Palace. Um but I want to throw my money, even though this is probably this is probably rough to, to count. I'm going to throw it on West Ham. I want West Ham to beat Manchester City. I, I, I don't know. I think Manchester City has just been kind of skating by, and they haven't been punished enough for it, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and West Ham, you know, they aren't amazing, but they can score goals. You know, and what, the, the, they had the Lanzini uh, laser this week? I don't know, man. I think they have something to give. I'm, I'm, I want to see West Ham pull an upset here against Manchester City. If there's a guy who can terrorize that Manchester City back line, it might be Mikel Antonio. I can really – I like that pick. I like that pick. Yep. Um, yep. I actually – maybe to go to a slightly different kind of game, I think Southampton is going to be Everton this weekend. I think it will surprise a lot of people. I think that yeah. without Richarlison, I think Everton is going to try to get a little cute with the way that they play. And I think Southampton, like they played an excellent game against Chelsea on the weekend. They're going to be going in with a lot of confidence. Um, Theo Walcott is playing against the club where he just came from. He just came from Everton. I think he'll be motivated. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it'll be a really fun and entertaining game to watch. But Agreed. Southampton plays tight in the middle of the field. They're going to close down that space on James. I see them being able to pull this game out. Um, what's the game of the week for you? Oh, that's a great question. Game of the week, Chelsea, Manchester United. No doubt. I also want to call it my guaranteed three points. Chelsea better absolutely route Manchester United. So here, here's my thing, though. Chelsea, right, if they end up trying to play, a, you know, if they play a lot of the ball with their attacking players – they're going to leave a lot of space behind, which is exactly what I think Manchester United need to catch some goals. So they may both end up kind of playing into each other's strengths. It's just about who I think plays harder. Who take you know? Does Manchester United end up setting up camp on their half, and then 
you know, Chelsea kind of gets to sit deeper and then find the counter? Or is it Manchester United who gets bullied back into their own box and then, you know, accidentally find space behind? That's going to be a good game, I think, uh, to see who, 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 can, who can find their way to a victory. I'm really excited to watch that game. I, I feel like the, the, recently the Man United-Chelsea games have been real classics. I think that's probably my pick, too. Another one to keep my eye on is, of course, Arsenal-Leicester. I think both clubs, it's a big game for both of them. They, they, yes. they both sort of you know, had tough 1-0 losses in games that they had chances to win. So I think, um, yeah, I, I, I'm really curious to see how both of those sides line up. And, and it could really be the, the first start for Thomas Partey for Arsenal. So that, that exactly. one's exciting. The, the Man United-Chelsea game, though, that's going to be incredible. A, a great way to spend a Saturday 5-5 five, five tie incoming. That would be my guess. 5-5 <laughs> five, five tie. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that prediction. Um, to, All right. To get you going a little bit more, listener, we mentioned the surprise coming. We're going to do a short episode on Friday to talk about Champions League because um, there's been some great Champions League that it's it's gotten underway. So, yeah, look for that Friday evening. Um, well, a little, little bonus, a little treat for you going into the weekend going to some great games. Um, yeah, Rodrigo, it's always such a joy to talk to you, my friend. And yeah, looking forward to talking to you again very soon. Absolutely. The pleasure is mine as well. Looking forward to our bonus episode Friday and another big weekend of Premier League soccer. <laughs>